So let's talk about the subtleties of Buddhist philosophy. No, Shunyavada, the emptiness school. What is empty? Well, how does the Buddha's teaching help us? How does it compare to the teachings that we've learned about Vedanta? You know, does anybody want from the Vaishnava tradition to talk about Buddha as an avatar and what that could mean theologically? You know, so let's have these conversations today, hopefully about Buddha, but don't feel like we're confined to talking Buddhism. If you have a question or a comment or something that you want to share that's other than that, please do it. Here's my resolution. We are doing longer today. We're going to 11 as an offering to the Dharma. Um, and and I, I my resolution is to go more quickly through questions so that more people can have their time to share and offer insights and offer questions. You know, so it is a big sangha. I, I would appreciate today if we can use our raised hand functions. If you can't find it, then just raise your hands and I'll try to see you. Um, but it helps if you can use the raised hand function. There's Brock. Um, and let's let's try to get as many questions in as we can. Thank you, dear Marcus. And as brief an answer as I can, and maybe we'll do like, if you have more than one question, let's start with one first. We'll answer that question, and then we'll do another cycle around. How's that? All right, my friends. Buddha Purnima Day. Let's start with um, Aishwarya Ji. Yes, dear Aishwarya Ji. Hello. How are you guys? Um, that was a great lecture. I just had a quick question to get over with. Um, so when the Buddha um, reached enlightenment, so how did his enlightenment differ from Ramakrishna's enlightenment? Or was it the same? Because I know Ramakrishna saw Kalima, but like, did Buddha see, like, did he see, I know he didn't, I don't know, did he see nothingness? No, nothing, you know? Yes. So it's very interesting that you asked that because there are various different kinds of bhavas, right? Moods that one experiences in spiritual life. And it's hard to say what the supreme moods are. But it seems like in our tradition, nirvikalpa samadhi would be the highest attainment of the Indic spiritual tradition. So now the question is, is the nirvikalpa samadhi of the Hindu yogi the same as the nirvana of the Buddhist master? And the answer is actually, if you look at the word, yes. Because nirvana is an Upanishadic word. And nirvana is a word that Upanishadic masters use to describe the encounter with Brahman, the self. Now, Brahman is a reality wholly apart from anything we can think or feel or even conceive of. Notice that Brahman is empty of all thingness, meaning Brahman is a no-thing. In Sanskrit, we call it avishaya. Vishaya means object, so avishaya means non-object. Brahman is a non-object. In fact, we distinguish between two kinds of cognitions or two kinds of knowledge. One is called vritti jnana and the other one is called swarupa jnana. Vritti jnana is knowledge of something, some entity, right? So if you're seeing ma kali, that's vritti jnana. You're seeing a being, an object. If you think about a table and you visualize it in your mind, that's vritti jnana. You're seeing some kind of uh, thing and you're in a dualistic relationship as the subject and the object. However, oh, funnily, we asked, is Kaz here? Now Kaz just came. <laughs> so funnily, the other thing, swarupa jnana, is very different. It's knowledge of knowledge itself which is so complex, so paradoxical. What do you mean knowledge of knowledge itself? That's why words cannot even begin to describe um, Brahman. So you could say Ramakrishna, he would say, okay, the Gayatri, sorry, the, the Sandhya, you know, the performance of ritual, melts into the Gayatri. The Gayatri melts into Om. And what happens to Om? It melts into the silence. So you could say, if Ramakrishna is in the state in which he's experiencing nirvikalpa samadhi, remember, nirvikalpa, the absence of all things, avishaya, the absence of all objects, Ramakrishna is experiencing the nothingness. 
you know, pure consciousness. And when you ask him, what is that like? He, like the Buddha, is silent. He'll say, what can I say? And he'll say, a salt doll was asked to measure the depth of the ocean. And then everyone will laugh. He'll say, what, how do I tell someone who's never eaten ghee what ghee tastes like? You see, he uses these phrases, like the Buddha, to say that there's no way I can talk about what I experience in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And he himself says that's the highest state. Oh, okay, I see. So, like, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is different than, like, um, what's it? I forgot how it's talked to me. When then seeing Galimax. The same, but ultimately different. Yes, I, I should probably add, though, that for Ramakrishna, actually, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is not the highest. To him, that's called Jnana, right? So you could say Savikalpa Samadhi is when you're having an experience of a deity, when the image of Kali is as real to you, in fact, more real to you than anything else in the world. That's Savikalpa, right? So in deep meditation, if you see your Ishta, that's called Savikalpa Samadhi. And according to the Yoga Shastra of Patanjali, that Nirvikalpa Samadhi is a higher experience than the Savikalpa Samadhi. So when Tottapuri came to teach Ramakrishna, he helped him transcend his visions of Kali, right? So he transcended it, but what Ramakrishna uniquely offers is called Vijnanavada, which is actually a tantric realization. It's a Shakta, Shakta Advaita realization, where after having Jnana, you get Vigyana, which is the feeling of everything in this world is made of that. Meaning, I walked up the steps and I saw the roof, and I realized that the steps were made of the same substance as the roof, so I walked back down. So when Ramakrishna would come down for Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he looked around and he saw that, Mother, it is you. You have become all of this. Mother, how can I pray to you? You have become the very words that I use to praise you. That, that is that revelation of of Ramakrishna, and you could say that's Shaktadvaita or Tantra, the, the feeling of this world is not Maya, it's real actually. You know, Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma, it's all Brahman. So then, did the Buddha have that? You could say, of course, because when the Buddha came out of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he walked up and down India organizing Buddhist monks together, right? And he would say he felt karuna, compassion. Why? Why did he feel compassion for all beings? Because he saw himself in all beings. In other words, he saw that everything was saturated with this avishaya that he wouldn't talk about. So attaining nirvana, attaining shunyata, void, is the same thing as attaining karuna, compassion. And this maha karuna must be the natural consequence of the shaktadvaita revelation that everything is really just that same nothingness. So yes, I think we could say that what the Buddha experienced is the exact same as what Ramakrishna experienced. But what they taught was slightly different given that they were teaching at different times in history. So uh, Jagat Guru will always have to teach to his audience, to her audience, to their time period. You know, so you will find differences. And it's a difference in style, in pedagogy, in bhava. Ramakrishna was certainly more of a bhakta. Why? Because bhakti is the path par excellence for this age. So that's what he was modeling. You know, the Christ, Ramakrishna, Rama, Krishna, Buddha, they're all the same person, but there are nuances. All right, I got it. It's like the different times for what different people needed. I got it. I got it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Beautiful question. Thank you, Energy. Thank you. Wonderful. Now let's see Brockji. Yes, Brock. Hello, brother. Um, we talked about uh, Nargajuna. I kind of, I had two questions. I kind of had to pick one. Uh, I wanted to see if you could uh, kind of talk about the reconciliation of 
Samsara and Nirvana? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you could say there are two ways to look at this problem. You can look at it through a logical perspective. And this was, I think, the logical problem that Nagarjuna saw in Buddhism. On one hand, if you say that everything is empty, if everything is nothing, you know, like samsara is empty, right? That's kind of the way out of samsara is to say that samsara is empty. So you could see the third truth of the Buddha posits the opposite of samsara. Nirvana. What is nirvana? Nirvana is not samsara, right? So from a logical point of view, not samsara equals nirvana. And nirvana is the antithesis of samsara, the opposite of samsara, fair? But samsara is not a thing, it's nothing, it's empty. The opposite of an empty thing must itself be empty. The opposite of a non-existent thing is also non-existent. In an avya nyayaka kind of logical sense. So if you say that samsara is nothing, then its opposite, nirvana, must also be nothing. And that would ruin Buddhism. That would be the end of Buddhism as we know it. If you've disproven nirvana as a possibility that takes out Buddha's third truth, his fourth truth crumbles, all you get is a sad, miserable French existentialist smoking cigarettes and complaining about the world. There's no more Buddhism at the point at which you concede that nirvana is empty. So that's the first problem. On the other hand, if you say nirvana is a thing, then you have another problem, which is eternalism, which is exactly what the Buddha was trying to move away from, this idea of an eternal soul or an eternal god. So... The reason Nagarjuna's school is called Madhyamika Buddhism is because he found a middle way. It's kind of a play on the Buddha's word, a middle way. In, in other words, he found a logical reconciliation of this paradox. Either samsara is nothing, making nirvana nothing, or samsara is something, making nirvana this eternalist construct. Both are undesirable in Buddhism. So what Nagarjuna, he both does this and doesn't do this, but he shows that both these views are, are fallacies. He shows that uh, materialism is not at all what Buddhism means. Neither is um, eternalism. He uses logic in Mula Madhyamika Karaka to empty out both these views of their, their valency. So it's neither emptiness nor is it something. It's neither samsara nor is it nirvana. So a way to kind of summarize this is to say they're not two different things opposed to one another. They're two words describing the same thing looked at from different angles. So really, Nagarjuna, he precedes Gaudapada. He precedes um, Shankara, right? So you could say, okay, the rope and the snake is very cogent here. There is there a rope apart from the snake? Right? There is a rope apart from the snake. There is some rope there. But is there a snake apart from the rope? Obviously not. There's no such thing as a snake. The snake is the rope. What is actually a rope you are now seeing as a snake? That's samsara. Samsara is looking at nirvana the wrong way. And nirvana is looking at samsara the right way. So if you look at it and you see a rope, it's the same snake being seen as a rope. And if you look at it and you see a snake, it's the same rope being seen as a snake. So ultimately, snake and rope are both pointing to some reality. So that's why he says it's not nothing, it's a no thing. The void, the shunyat, that shunyata is actually what is being looked at now as samsara, later as nirvana. That's kind of, I guess, I, I'm, I'm not being too fair about this because I seem to be implying, and this is not what Nagarjuna is doing, I seem to be implying that there is something. But Nagarjuna would not say so. Nagarjuna has no view. Remember, he's not saying, okay, this is how it is. He's just emptying every other view out of its valency. That's how he resolves the paradox between materialism and eternalism, by showing that Buddha meant neither. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm gonna leave my hand up because I have another question. But okay, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, this is nice. This is good. I like this like quick fire stuff. It's, we can really get to. All right, yes, dear Cat G, please. Hello, can you hear me? Okay. Wonderfully. Awesome. So I just had a really quick interjection um, because you mentioned uh, just the Vaishnava interpretations of the Buddha and how we see him in our tradition. Um, there's a lot of differing traditions, especially considering on like the Hindu reappropriation of the Buddha and a lot of debate. <laughs> so I'm only going to be representing a very small slice of my tradition, but I actually have an article to cite about um, at least how I interpret it within my own framework and his teachings. So this is from a, a Gaudiya Vaishnava review. Um, it's not in association with uh, any kind of uh, Gaudiya Mat. It's more precisely, more of like an academic <laughs> takedown and metaphysical takedown of the uh, 10 avatars of Vishnu. And they include the Buddha. And here's the reason for, for this. So the reason why they include the Buddha here in this metaphysical outline of the 10 avatars is that Due to Vedic complex mode of worship to God, the right, the rigidness of the caste system and other superstitions prevalent in the society, people were subjected to great oppression and ill treatment. Animal sacrifice in the yajna or fire sacrifice and many other cruelties were practiced in the name of God. To eradicate this blemish from human society, God incarnated himself as the Buddha and taught people the rare virtues of truth and nonviolence. Uh, Jiva gains wisdom by maturity of knowledge. So Jiva, of course, in this uh, Vaishnav, very kind of like sort of separate, but non still together framework is the soul or like the self. Uh, very interesting definitions. But at the stage begins to hate the earth polluted with envy and other vices. This leads the aspirant to the final stage of emancipation and merging of the soul with Brahma, attaining Nirvana. So that is a more metaphysical and, I, in my opinion, compassionate kind of rendering of the Buddha within Vaishnava traditions. Um, there's different uh, reasons why he's included as an avatar of Vishnu. Um, and some of it is cause for debate, but I actually think that that specific reading from uh, the Arisa review, which is in the Discord, is super succinct and compassionate and almost universalist. You kind of see like a very early kind of Vaishnava universalism, which I really like. Um, because I guess a lot of what um, is known of Vaishnavism in the West is like you said about most religions, or excuse me, religious institutions is that it is very constricting and um, almost presents itself as a sort of, the reform Vaishnava movements kind of, eat up the old kind of a universalist, um, very open and uh, free bird kind of Vaishnava movements. So they get kind of lost and enmeshed in one another. And in that process, there becomes a lack of compassion for other traditions. And it's really, really sad because, you know, uh, I think that these inner chambers, while these traditions are really important and the metaphysical underpinnings of them are as well. And the thing is that most uh, atheists, especially, you know, atheists who feel rightly wounded and disenfranchised by their institutions, they never get to see the inner chambers. They think that this is all, you know, because they've been presented with 
this kind of very dry and soured view of these traditions that they don't see the metaphysical aspects beneath them. Maybe I kind of went into a rant. <laughs> um, I found that point very, very important um, because it's not only, you know, in within Christianity and within, uh, you know, Islam that has this kind of alienating quality within the institution, but also within Eastern traditions, there's an alienating quality when uh, look, looking at the reform movements of Vaishnavism and seeing, kind of piecing apart and thinking on your own terms, what about this tradition appeals to me? Why do I see beauty in it? And what do my experiences tell me about where to go next or where to turn? And, you know, for me, that led me into Vaishnavism, but it led me in such a way where I was kind of safeguarded from, you know, fundamentalism. And I feel very blessed for that because of Ramakrishna and this kind of universal thread that connects us all, even as theists and non-theists. That's beautifully expressed, sister. You know, because reality is beyond all categories of existent or non-existent, theistic or non-theistic, you know. Um, but also what you said about Vaishnava universalism, it's very, very beautiful, the, that phrase, because I think it's Bhagavad Gita chapter 4, right? In chapter 4 of the Gita, verse 7 or 8, I can't remember. But he, Krishna offers this metaphysic for avatars. And he very clearly says, whenever Dharma is at a low ebb, as you describe with sacrifices and not... And by the way, the advent of the Buddha was also the world's first veterinary institutions, right? Because the Buddha, yes, that's exactly it, for seven, eight, right? So veterinary institutions appeared in India because of Buddhism. Isn't that interesting? Uh, because it's like compassionate love for animals. Uh, ahimsa was one of the core tenets of Buddhism and Jainism. So you saw like hospitals where elephants could just roam in and be taken care of. Not even domestic animals, but like elephants, cows, just wandering about. If they were sick, the Buddhists would go and tend to them. So yeah, this idea of compassion for all living beings, that is the avataric mission, you know? So Rama came for a specific purpose, had to slay some demons. Krishna came for a specific purpose, had to slay some demons, had to start a war, had to usher in the Kali Yuga, like all of that. And so you could say, okay, then if an avatara is broadly defined as any being who re-ups the Mali role of spirituality, then the Buddha, the Christ did just that. But also importantly, <laughs> Christ was not a, 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 a new religion. It was a Jewish reform movement at first, right? So you can even argue for the first 400 years of Christianity, it's a Jewish reform movement. Although like Paul is sending out letters to invite other people into the fold, it's mostly just a, a ragtag group of people drawing fishes in the sand, running about here and there and practicing a very like hermit-oriented, hesychastic kind of tradition. Then Constantine turns it into its own religion and then it sets itself apart and against its predecessor, Judaism. The same thing happens in Buddhism. You know, um, in Buddhism, actually, interestingly enough, um, there was the death of the Buddha. And during that time, in this place called Rajagriha, which is somewhere near uh, Magadha, I think Buddhism, actually, a lot of its language is not Pali or Sanskrit, it's Ardha Magadhi, right? So in this place called Magadha, all these great kind of disciples came together, like Ananda and all of them, they came together, and they decided to propagate the Buddhist teachings. And that actually happened for hundreds of years, like quite literally 400 or something years until the first tr written stuff appeared, you know, and the, the Tripitaka, the Tripitaka, the three baskets, 
You know, there are three kind of things like Vinaya Pitaka, right? Sutta Pitaka, like all these like texts. They appear in Sri Lanka in Pali like 400 years after the Buddha. So you could say in the beginning, the Buddha was not seen as a separate religion, nor was Christianity seen as a separate religion from Judaism. So you can make a very strong case for cultural continuity and you can stretch it back beyond the Vedas to universal religion. You know, and you could say, okay, there are principles that we see in all the avatars, principles that are unique and universal to spirituality itself. So I would make that claim. And the Buddha is an avatar as much as anybody's an avatar, but that doesn't make the Buddha, like, you can't claim him, as you said, right? Like, you can't claim him for this tradition, not that tradition. You know, he's claimed by all traditions because he represents genuine spirituality. Yes, beautiful. Poor Buddha, you know, poor Christ. Imagine if they come there oh, like... Yeah. Imagine if he like goes to <laughs> the text of a Buddhist fighting another Buddhist school and that Buddhist school arguing with that Buddhist school and all of them ganging up against the Nyayakas and the Vaisheshikas <laughs> and all this debate. He'd be like, it's like the Buddhist YouTube comment section. We would all be meditating right now, fools. Exact same thing with Vaishnava schools. Like post Chaitanya, everyone starts screaming at each other. Like, bro. You know, you're, you're writing this long-ass Reddit posts about Shunyavada or Yogacara Buddhism, Cheta Matra mind-only Buddhism, when really you could be on your mat getting Shamatha mind, right? It's like, what are you doing? Go and say your Japa Mala, you know, you fanatical. <laughs> That's the thing. All right. Good, good. Wonderful. Truly. Okay, so I saw, um, I see Jordan, I see Westover. I saw Justin's hand go up and then disappear. So I don't know, Justin, if you wanted, if you're still here. Okay, no, okay, let's move on to, um, oh, there's, yeah, okay, I see iPhone number four. Good, so let's go to Jordan, let's go to Westifer, let's go to iPhone four. <laughs> yes, Jordan G. Yes, I see you, I see you. Yes, Jordan G. Uh, so I've seen your videos about, like, uh, solipsism. Right. And for some reason, my brain still doesn't completely get the difference between that and I don't know what the other word would be, just, like, spirituality, I guess. Yes, yes. And I was hoping if you'd be able to expand on it just a little bit because there's something my brain's missing. It's a great question. Absolutely great question. And note that there are schools, by the way, that are fully solipsistic. So briefly, solipsism or, you know, a more friendly way to say it is subjective idolism is the belief that only I exist. And I can never prove or verify the existence of any other thing or any other person apart from my experience of this world. So for all I know, everyone is a figment of my imagination. For all I know, I mean, I've never experienced anything outside of myself anyway, right? And this can be easily demonstrated. Take a perception. Anything that you've ever experienced is nothing more than a perception. And that perception is nothing other than the mind that perceives it, right? So when you look at a table, are, are you seeing a table and some other thing called seeing a table? Have you ever had that experience where there's both a table and the experience of seeing a table? No, right? You've only experienced the latter, meaning there's no former. Anytime you've seen a table, it has never actually been an experience of a table. It's been an experience of seeing a table. You've only ever experienced hearing a sound, seeing a table, tasting a taste. You've never tasted a strawberry. Oh, you, you don't know what a strawberry is. You don't know what a sound is. You don't know what... None of that is available to you. What's available to you is your own mental packaging and representation of the world. So solipsism argues that this is all we can know, all we can be sure of. And so I alone exist. That's solipsism. I think someone... Who was it? Um, 
it was a philosopher, Bertrand Russell, I think. He said he came to the conclusion of solipsism and he wrote about it. And then someone else wrote back to him, a lady who said, I'm very convinced by your paper on solipsism. I'm a solipsist too. <laughs> and Bertrand Russell was like, you can't, there can't be more than one solipsist. He's like, I've thoroughly failed insofar as there are other solipsists. <laughs> no, solipsism is you alone exist. Everything is in your mind. So there are schools like that. In Buddhism, they're called like Cheta Matra, consciousness only, or like uh, Yogacara Buddhism. You know, the, the Yogacara Buddhism is mind-only Buddhism. It's totally solipsistic school. Then we also have Eka Jiva Bhada. Eka Jiva Bhada is in Advaita, one individual only school. And there's a lot of like scriptural argumentation done in support of this view because it's, it's very tenable, right? It's a very defensible position that everything you know, you only know from within yourself. So there's nothing external to you. However, however tenable it might be, it's not at all desirable. <laughs> Cause it could be like the uh, end of all ethics, the end of all love, the feeling of tremendous alienation and isolation. There are definitely Advaitins who share this view of solipsism, but most of them aren't. Most Advaitins are realist. So now, yeah, incredibly, right? There's only, that's why it's called Eka Jiva Bada, you know? Uh, mind, yeah, mind is not individual, yes. So there is, Eka, yeah, that's, I think, more of Shankaracharya kind of interconnectedness idea where, you know, if you say Eka Jiva Bada, only one individual school, that can be incredibly egotistical and it reifies the idea of a self and it's very alienating. So actually what Advaita, and this is the Advaita of Shankara, what they say is something else. The world is not in Jordan. Jordan is actually in the world. There is a Jordan. And there is stuff, stuff that Jordan knows and stuff that Jordan doesn't know, right? Okay, if Jordan was a solipsist, you would be forced to say that only what I know is real and nothing that I don't know exists. My entire reality is limited to only what I as Jordan know, which is very sad, right? It limits the entire universe down to just this tiny fraction of your individual POV. Shankar doesn't say that. He says, no, Jordan knows this much and Jordan doesn't know like this much. Both of them are experiences in consciousness. So you could say Jordan is in a room as an independent being who is separate from Brock, Westifer, me. We're all different beings and we're all appearing to each other as the other. That's all well and good. Everything about realism is maintained. Realism is the opposite to subjective idealism. All of that is maintained. There are physical laws and they're objective. Gravity works whether or not there's a Jordan to perceive it. You know, that's all maintained. But here's the thing. Isn't that also true of a dream? In a dream, you are a specific subjective experiencer. And that subjective experiencer exists in the context of other subjective experiencers. There are many different people in the dream, at least insofar as you are in the dream, right? Now, if Dream Jordan was a Yogacharan or like uh, Eka Jiva Vadin, you would say, only me, Dream Jordan exists. The rest of the dream is just the dream. You see, now you're privileging a the specific part of the dream against the rest of the dream. Advaita is talking about a whole different order of reality, the waking world. When you wake up, you're no longer Jordan. You realize that that subjective dream Jordan was one of many versions of you, that you are actually not Jordan, you are all the people. So it's, it's the, the direct opposite of solipsism. It's the idea that everyone exists and they're all me, but not me, the Jordan. Me, something far deeper than Jordan. Something that includes Jordan as much as it includes Westifer. You know, that's a different order of reality. That's how it's different from solipsism. Because the individual is not affirmed. The transpersonal individual is affirmed. 
the big self, the little ego is annihilated in the, in the face of that big self. Thou canst not look upon the face of God and live. Yes. Cool. So I guess, uh, I guess I somewhat did understand it. It's just that, uh, I guess my brain doesn't completely understand it because it's not like I've experienced it or, you know, I'm not there yet. So I guess, uh, well, let's you know, think of it this way. Point where it's like, yeah. Think of it this way. Jordan is an experience in you, the witness. Mm-hmm. So Jordan knows some things. Jordan knows other, doesn't know other things. Both knowing and not knowing are experiences occurring to you, the witness, right? Mm-hmm. So it can't be solipsism because you are not a Jordan. Interesting. Do you see? You are the one experiencing the phenomena called Jordan along with Jordan's mind, what it knows and what it doesn't know. All of that is an experience and you are the experiencer. Wait, I'm confused as to how that's different from solipsism. <laughs> yes, it's different in that if Jordan says I alone exist and Jordan yeah. affirms Jordan's mind, that's solipsism. But Jordan uh, okay, and okay. his mind is an experience to you, the witness. So one's identifying with the uh, ego of Jordan. And, exactly. one is not. and the other has completely effaced it. Gotcha. They're radically opposite yeah. though. Yeah, have you ever seen like, okay, well, a really rich person, super rich, like yeah. old money, doesn't need to make a big deal of her money, right? She's so rich that she doesn't need to prove it to anybody anymore. So she dresses simply yeah. and wears like sandals and frequents simple restaurants. Outwardly, she looks like a lower middle class person. Right. It seems like the extremes of any spectrum resemble each other outwardly. The wise woman and right, the yeah. fool are both silent. Similarly, the solipsist and the Advaita master are both outwardly similar, but inwardly it's worlds apart. Transpersonal identity right. is a whole other thing than only Jordan exists. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. It's close though. I mean, my view is more Shankara. My view is more like realism is affirmed. This is a dream. Gaurapada uses the pedagogy of this is a dream. Everything in the dream is consistent. But once I wake up, that's a whole order of reality apart from the dream. So if you were an actual character in a movie, there would be other people in that movie. But you are not that. You're the movie screen. That's kind of my school. But there are, and I want to say there are definitely schools like Eka Jivabada and Yogacara that are very like more solipsistic, you know. Or there's even schools like... Yeah, sorry. Uh, I don't know. I was just going to say, uh, can I describe to you, like, uh, I guess a, a way of, not a way of thinking, but a concept. And you tell me what is closer to, you know, uh, spirituality or uh, solipsism. And uh, so I like to do this thought experiment with some of my friends right, where I'm like, hey, visualize, um, you know, you're watching a movie of Brad Pitt, but in VR. But then all of a sudden you're hooked up and like your senses are Brad Pitt your emotions are, are then hooked up and you have same emotions as him and eventually even the same thoughts as him. And you see what he sees, smell what he smells, thinks what he thinks, you would think you're him, right? And so that thing that is aware of the movie, right? Um, that is who you are is usually the way I look at it. And is that closer to a solipsism or to something else? On this week's episode of Solipsism or Spirituality, find out if Jordan's VR thought experiment is Solipsism or Spirituality.
<laughs> that's our game show it's gonna be like a light uh, you'll say like cling the solipsism light comes on and you fall you get dunked in water or like cling the spirituality <laughs> light comes on you get your prize <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah no this is good this is like actually exactly exactly right the idea of really believing what you see is you and I think, you know, we use rope and snake, clay and pot. These are ancient examples. But today we do better with like VR and Oculus Rift and movies and, you know, 3D animation. So I think that's the exact analogy. There is a virtual reality. And I really think I am Brad Pitt in that virtual reality. But mm-hmm. I'm not. I am the one watching that. And you mm-hmm. could even go further. You could say it like in the event of a dream. If I wake up from it, Brad Pitt is gone. Brad Pitt is only alive insofar as I am there to project Brad Pitt into existence. So Jordan is there insofar as there is a you to perceive it. Right. So wait, which one, which one is this closer to? A spiritual. This, this is definitely the Advaita view, not quite. Um, it's not solipsism okay. because you're not saying that only Brad Pitt exists. You know, you're saying that I, the witness of Brad Pitt and all the other people in that VR Oculus Rift, that alone exists. Cool. Okay, cool. Thank you. Good. Beautiful, Jordan. Very beautiful. This, this could be a whole lecture in and of itself. So I'm sorry I treated it so briefly and glibly. Um, But if you're interested, I'd like to recommend a book for you. It's very difficult. It's an academic book. Um, But I think it's the richest, the richest book I've ever picked up on, um, the different kinds of Advaita, but this is this is uh, primarily about um, awareness only Advaita. You know, so it's called um, the Advaita Kevalam of Shankara. It's called Consciousness in Indian Philosophy by Staneshwar Timalsina. You know, this is actually my Shaiva Acharya. My uh, I, I learned Shaivism from him predominantly, but he writes these great books. He's now at San Diego State, though he studied at Benares University, but he's, he teaches at San Diego. Anyway, this is a really heavy book. It's so thin, but each page is like, okay, I'm going to spend the next two hours reading just this page. <laughs> awesome. I love that. Uh, any chance you can type that in the chat? Yeah, so I can, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, consciousness consciousness in it's his like doctorate paper i think i don't know in indian philosophy he's an acharya pandit you know the so it's very philosophical the advaita doctrine of awareness only um by star neshwar timalsina it's a very very tough but beautiful book so those of you who are more like you know um academically inclined you'll enjoy this cool yeah, I was so confused about that for a while. So thank you so much for clearing that up. Yes, we'll do a lecture on it. All the various next week, we'll start going back into like philosophical stuff. We'll do a lecture, maybe not next week, but eventually on all the different schools of Advaita. You know, we could talk about Yogacara as well and some of the Cheta Matra Buddhism stuff, certainly. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Beautiful. All right. So Westifer and then iPhone 4. <laughs> Turia, Turia, fourth state. Yes, dear Westifer G. Thank you so much for this lecture tonight. This was one of my favorites. Yeah, you liked it? Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's like very timely for me too, because I've been reminiscing a lot about um, what my experience of of God was like as a kid and then through the whole atheism thing and and lately. And um, I, you know, at the time when I, uh, so 
for people who don't know, I grew up and I'm a, a pastor's kid and I grew up in a very religious home. I was very real. I was very religious until I was like 13. And then I started to notice some inconsistencies in the church, you know, like you're talking about, I noticed hypocrisy. I started to ask questions. People got uncomfortable really quickly. They never gave me a satisfactory answer. And, um, and there was a distinct time that I remember um, where I really wanted to believe in God and I was doing everything I could to like find like something that I could hold on to uh, where I could, where I could actually maintain this belief. And there came a point where I was like, well, I can either ignore it or lie to myself or go with what I think is true. And I think that's the point where a lot of people ignore it. Um, but I just asked myself, do I want to believe, um, do I, do I want to believe what makes me comfortable or do I want the truth? And I decided that I wanted the truth. And that is why I now consider that the beginning of my spiritual journey, but the beginning of my spiritual life, um, which at the time I thought for sure it was the end of my spiritual life, but it was actually the beginning because that's when I decided that truth was like my core value. Um, and, um, then it's funny because, uh, through, through the next 10 years, I really like, I went deep on like trying to be as rational as possible and learning, uh, a lot of different types of philosophies and things. And, um, what was funny is this, I, I posted this in the discord one time, but this, this thought I like was that when I was 13, I took a closer look at the idea of God and I realized that it was imaginary. And then 10 years later, God took a closer look at the idea of me and realized it was imaginary. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliantly put. I want that like, like meme and I want it framed. <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's good. I don't take credit for that. It just appeared. Um, but, and um, it's funny because over the last year, especially I've been noticing a lot of like similarities getting deja vu because um, this is another thing you, you gain from the experience of leaving religion and being an atheist for a while is the relationship between beliefs and habits and feelings. Because there was a, a period of time uh, after I uh, stopped believing in God where I still, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh my God. I would not take the Lord's name in vain still. And one time a friend noticed it. they were like, why do you keep saying, Oh my gosh. And, um, and I was like, I, it's just habit, I guess. And they're like, you know, you can say it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I started saying it, but I, there was still this visceral thing, even though I, I, I was like, okay, I've established there's no God in the sky that's looking down on me, judging me for saying this word. Um, but I still felt the hesitation and a little bit of like nervousness about it. And so I started to realize that what I consciously believe, what I rationally decide that I believe, um, it doesn't always correlate to my actions and the feelings and my body and my mind. And 
a very similar thing sort of happened after I um, started getting into Buddhism. And, uh, uh, you know, I uh, started, uh, this is the, this is why I love that you brought up Nagarjuna earlier is that if you go hard on rationality, eventually rationality shows you the limitations of rationality, right? If you're consistent and relentless with it. And, um, but and so, so eventually, you know, I start reading these arguments about no self and I'm like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and, but I keep walking around, um, you know, I'm like, okay, I've established there's, there's no separate independent self here yet. I'm still, uh, acting in egotistical ways, you know, trying to satisfy myself by, by reaching for other things out in the world, which we've established are empty. Um, and, um, so this, this kind of like finding consistency between beliefs, uh, like rational understandings, habits, feelings, I feel like is a very, um, a very valuable part of, of leaving religion for a while. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I love that you brought up Nagarjuna. And I guess the question that I wanted to ask you was related to, um, the relationship between Buddhism and, uh, and Advaita, uh, which is about the skandhas, the, the five aggregates. So we have form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Vinyana, or Vinyana, 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 which, Vinyana yeah. which you mentioned earlier. I, I was happy to hear that. And I've, I've seen some different discourse on this. Now, um, uh, on one hand, everybody's like, okay, well, this is, this is why, this is why Buddhism is, is not uh, Advaita is because uh, awareness is just an aggregate. Um, and then uh, I've, I've heard an, another take that uh, Vigyana is, uh, something more akin to dualistic discrimination. Um, so what's your, what's your take on that? Yes. Yes. Beautiful question. I, I wanted to say though, before we launch into that discussion about Nisargadatta Maharaj and how, when he became enlightened, they asked him, how did you become enlightened? Right? And he said, my guru told me I was Brahmin. So I believed him. Belief is there. Then he goes, and then I acted accordingly. <laughs> That's the part that we don't yeah. get, right? Belief is there, yeah. but there's not a follow through. So in fact, in the, in the scripture, there is precedence for this. It's called Asambhavana and Viparita Bhavana. So when you learn Advaita or learn Buddhism or any kind of Gnostic contemplative spirituality, uh, two things will happen. The first is Asambhavana, meaning the obstacle of impossibility. Literally, it's like when you feel like the teachings are impossible. Someone tells you everything is empty and you're like, that can't be true. No, search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. No, you know, like that's Asambhavana. You maybe don't want it to be true. Or if you do want to genuinely engage with the teaching, you don't yet see how it's true. It's impossibility. You, these teachings are impossible. So when you have a belief and a conviction, you've overcome that. You've overcome Asambhavana. Like you said, I looked at the, the, the arguments and they made sense. But that's only after you got to the limits of rationality, you know? So I, I wait, by the way, I should say before I forget that everyone should watch Westerfer very closely because your testimonies to me, I think we could learn a lot from, you know, because brother, you've been here forever and your shares in the check-ins, like no one can doubt the depth and intensity of your practice and your consistency. And you have to ask, well, why does it seem like 
Westerfer's joy and profundity deepens every time I see him. Why does it seem like his practice is so consistent and so steady? Why is it that Westerfer seems through and through full of substance? And you could say, ah, because his spirituality is premised on firm footing, on true foundations. And you just expressed that. The quest for truth, the radical inquiry into truth, not what's comfortable, but what's true. That moves me, brother, that like that this, your very like existence is to me an embodiment of all the stuff I, I, I talk about and believe in, you know? So you're too kind. Yeah. So that's why <laughs> I feel like, thank you for sharing your testimonies are so valuable to me and to others. So before I forget, I just want to point that out, you know, look very closely as to what Westerfer is saying, because that is it, the firm foundation. That's what gives this consistency. Many people will come here and go, never come back. Some will come here, go come back every now and then. You know, but you can count on Westerfer staying at the the, the mat. You know, he's practicing, um, and the value of foundations. Yes. Okay. So the next obstacle, Asambhavana. Okay, I don't believe it's true. It's impossible. The next obstacle, and I'll quickly do this um, iPhone four. I'll come to you in just a moment. Um, next obstacle is Viparita Bhavana, which is I know it's true. I'm convinced. I'm fully intellectually satisfied. I just don't act according to what I do. <laughs> you know, this viparita bhavana is overcome through rigorous internalization. So the three pragnas are hearing, contemplating, and meditating. Hearing and contemplating overcome asambhavana. And then meditating overcomes viparita bhavana. That's what we would call nididhyasana. You know, yes, awesome. Okay, I just wanted to say that before the question proper. So the Buddhists who say that Buddhism cannot be Advaita because Vijnana is one of the aggregates don't really understand what Advaita means by consciousness. That's kind of a superficial reading of Advaita because Advaita uses the word consciousness in two senses. There are two consciousnesses actually in Advaita. Okay, there's, okay. before a pundit throws something at me, I know there's only one. It's Advaita, it's not two, but there is an appearance of a secondary consciousness, which we call Chid Abhasa. Abhasa means shining, uh, but it's probably best translated as shadow of or reflection of consciousness. So Chid Abhasa in Advaita is the same as Vigyana, one of the five skandhas in Buddhism. These are the Buddhists, they say, okay, Vigyana can be dissolved into Prakriti. You know, this Vigyana is just one of the Pancha skandhas, like, give it back to Prakriti, dissolve Prakriti into the flux of change. By the way, I hope someone will ask today why change equals emptiness. That's one of my favorite discussions to have. The link between oh, yeah. change and emptiness. So in, please, someone ask that. emptiness and no self. Yes. It's just different takes on the same thing. Shanikam, Anityam, Anatman. So like, how does that happen? Like, how do you get Shunyam from Shanikam, right? Like, how do you get void from momentariness and how do you get um anatman from void like that's obvious but so, anyway there's so much i want to talk about but like just to this this point so when advaitins say chid abhasa they mean it in the same sense as the buddhist mean vignana and those aren't real so chid abhasa is just the light of the moon it's not the actual body of light called the sun so this mind this basic consciousness in fact vignana i've seen it translated as basic consciousness which is just like the, the being aware of my sensations, of my form, of this world, that is made possible through the Chitabhasa. So the example we get is the sun, the moon, and the earth. The earth is all possible knowables. Feelings, cognitions, perceptions, all of that is the earth. Most of the time, that earth, actually all of the time, the earth is lit by the moon in this metaphor. So I see the earth via moonlight. If I make the mistake that the moon is a luminary body, then I don't have Advaita. Then I just have basic materialism, right? But if I say, no, the moon is borrowing its light from something categorically different, then I can dissolve 
Chitabasa, the same way the Buddhist dissolves Vijnana in favor of something more real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why you can yeah, resolve. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it seems like the uh, the through line of, of non-duality, whether it's um, Vedanta or Buddhism, is that uh, the distinctions we see between things are not a, a fundamental aspect of reality. Yes. It's, a, it's a, a function of the mind. Yes, yes. Hence the prevalency of like Ekajivabada, Yogacara, because you can reduce everything to the mind. And you ought to. In fact, today we do pat, pat, pat. That's like, I reduce all the world to perceptions. What is the world but perceptions? But then you can, I reduce all perceptions to mind. But what is a perception but a function of the mind? And then, but I reduce mind to its ultimate cause, the Mahakarana consciousness. So when I go pat, pat, pat in puja, it's a sign of spiritualization, going from gross perceptions to subtle mental cognitions to pure awareness, the sun that lights it all. Yeah. Beautiful, brother. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you too. And by the way, uh, earlier uh, when you like showered me with compliments, I w- I just want to say I feel like everybody here feels that way about you, and we all <laughs> um, are thankful for you, and you are a source of constant inspiration and um, motivation in our spiritual lives. Oh, um, so much love and, and hugs and <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, all the hugs. Um, <laughs> It's because of that dream where we hung out. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Good vibe. Um, And then uh, last thing, uh, again, on the topic of atheism and Buddhism is that uh, what I really appreciated coming from a kind of skeptical materialist place looking at Buddhism was that I read it and I went, oh, these claims are actually testable. Mm. They are all claims about... uh, uh, an actual experience of reality, which I can test by practicing, which I can actually just meditate and check and see if it's true, right. which was a great relief for me after all the, uh, all the, uh, just being told to believe things blindly before. So if anybody's interested in testable claims, check out Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> And not suffering too. Yeah. Anybody who's interested in testable claims and ending categorically all forms of suffering, come to Buddhism. <laughs> As a side thought, if you want to end suffering, you know, yeah. testable claims. Yeah. Now with ending the, suffering, yeah. not that important in Buddhism. Yeah. So. <laughs> suffering is like a, a, a footnote in Buddhism. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, West Virginia. All right. Wonderful. And here's um, iPhone 4. <laughs> Is that me? That's you. Yeah, it says on okay. my screen, iPhone 4. Yes. Sorry. It, somehow I got kicked out. And when I came back in, I put iPhone 4 instead of my name. Sorry. My name is Sahar. Anyway, Hello, Sahar. I'm also very grateful for your page. Hi. Um, it's very inspiring and helpful. Thank you for everything that you put out. Um, So the question I have is, um, I struggle with this a lot. In some ways, I feel like I'm very connected to the love in this world, to the animals and plants. um, But I I would like to know, if I met God, and I said, God, why does schizophrenia exist? Because it seems to me like every single 
thing that like we talk about with regards to ending suffering can happen when you're sane. And um, my brother has schizophrenia and I've witnessed it for 20 years and the decline. And I don't see an insane person having the capacity to end their suffering. Mm. And um, like the explanation I got in the country I was raised, mm. um, which was Iran and their religion was Islam, was that um, he'll go to heaven and God will make up for his suffering in right. this world. And then the religion that I like kind of from Buddhism, I got that he chose this for himself before right. he was born. None of it makes sense. It just all seems bullshit. Like, yeah, yeah. This is where I feel like I feel a lot of connection towards God, but I also feel a lot of anger because I don't understand yes. his thinking or her thinking. Or like, if I met Buddha today, what would be Buddha's answer? And why yes. do none of these big religions talk about mental disorders? Yes, That's what yes. I want to know. No, it's a very important question. Anybody who is at all interested in spirituality has to eventually ask the question. It's called the problem of evil, the odyssey, right? The odyssey is the name for exactly this sort of question. It's like, why is there suffering in the world? And how does this suffering fit in God's plan? You know, because to say that this God who is supposedly benevolent and omnipotent is okay with suffering either implies that that same God is not omnibenevolent or worse, not omnipotent, Right. So you say, okay, a God is all good and all powerful. It doesn't match with our experience of seeing people suffer. So I think it was a Jewish um, writer, I forget who, someone maybe can say in the chat, who said, if God exists, an atheist writer, then that God must personally apologize to me for the Holocaust. It seems so senseless. Why would, the, why would that be even necessary? And you can't say like, oh, because of some greater good, because why would that greater good depend on something horrible happening now? If God was so powerful, God could achieve that greater good without the need of this horrible thing, right? This Holocaust. Yeah, and I also feel like there is a distinguishing factor between the Holocaust and, say, schizophrenia. One is caused by men and one is caused yeah, by nature. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like natural disasters versus like mental illnesses or physical illnesses that just come out of nowhere. Whereas the other one, yeah, you could say, okay, that's just people like messing up. <laughs> It's just humans being yeah, one is yeah. us hurting each other, the other is God hurting us. Yeah, exactly. Like when That's... something happens, we say, okay, well, the people didn't do it, so God must have done it. So if you say God did it, you you have to because God's all powerful, right? So God controls everything. So how can an all-powerful person, I mean, being be all good if part of that God's power is to give schizophrenia? Exactly. It's a very, very deep question. Actually, it was my, my thesis when I was in college. My paper, the only one paper that I have out in academia is on this very issue. It's called um, On Mackey's Problem of Evil. There was a philosopher called Mackey, and I was responding to him about the problem of evil. Um, and Mackey makes this point. He says, okay, the Christians give various answers. If you say, and he's mostly talking about Christian theology, but I think the same would apply to Islamic theology as well, dualistic theologies of God and heaven and that. So he says, okay, the first response the Christian offers is um, evil is necessary for some greater good. So Christian would say there are first order evils like poverty, like uh, mental illness, 
like natural disasters. These are what you call first order evils. They are necessary in order to get second order good, which is charity, compassion, help. So a basic theological response. I'm not saying this is the one I'm offering you. I will tell you what the Buddha will say, by the way. I'll give you the answer from God, from the Buddha in just a moment, because we actually have that, by the way. But before that, I just want to walk you through like the basic philosophical infrastructure. So the first response is say, first order evils are necessary for second order good. So you will never be able to experience the joy and the depth of compassion if not for a schizophrenic brother. So you could say the evil that your brother has to endure is actually ultimately good because it gives your family like a rallying point. It gives you the depth of emotion. Like that's the first response, which is horrible, right? Because you have to say, no, no, no. There's another thing, which is second order evil. So, you know, with regards to Hitler, you would call that second order evil. Like pain is a first order evil. And you could say, oh, if pain exists, then you get the second order good, which is to solve pain. But there is also the second order evil to cause it, right? Like Hitler, the reason Hitler exists is because there are first order evils. So this doesn't work. This idea of first order, second order, it doesn't work because you can just go on ad infinitum. That's Mackey's first way of taking down Islamic and Christian theology. You know, you can't appeal to some second order good. The second thing is um, free will. So usually this is the argument that they will give. It's free will. You, and this, again, you pointed out, only applies to actions that humans do, not to things that seem to happen through nature. And even insofar as we talk about actions that people do, the question becomes, well, why did God create people this way to be predisposed to evil or predisposed to mental illness? Like, why wouldn't God design people to be predominantly good and then give them free will? Right? Yeah, so, okay, now I was reading a chat. So yes, we have free will. And even then, Mackie's not satisfied. He's like, what's going on? This is a very difficult problem, you know, the problem of free will and the problem of evil. So let's see what God says. So Buddha, Ramakrishna, I'm going to give you Ramakrishna's response. Remember, Ramakrishna is like Christ. He's like Buddha. He's like God incarnate in this tradition. So someone came up to him with this question. Why is there evil in the world? And Ramakrishna gives four answers, each subtler than the last. Okay, you ready for it? Sorry, I can't, I can't hear you. I, I saw you moving your mouth. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Sorry, my children are screaming in the back. Oh, okay, no worries. Okay, here we go. These are each subtler than the last. And to impress this point, someone just like you came to Ramakrishna and was deeply grieving for the ills of the world. He had seen a lot of suffering in his family, in the world, and he just wants an explanation. So he goes to Ramakrishna and he says, why did God do this? Why is there suffering in the world? So then Ramakrishna's first response, this is the first level of response. He smiles and he says, who can understand her sweet will? Like, obviously that's the first response you're going to get. Who can understand? Nobody can understand God. This pisses the guy off. He's like, no, I need to understand it. I can't just accept this as something that just I'll never get an answer for. I demand an answer. So Ramakrishna is like, okay, fine. Next level of response. He says, it's God's, it's her sweet will. He's referencing a Bengali poem in which someone talks about her sweet will. This makes him even madder. So I prefer the first answer. I don't understand God. The second answer is worse. Now God wills that this stuff happens. That's awful. What, what kind of a horrible God is this? And then Ramakrishna gives his third response, which is, no, my child, it's her play. This, of course, pisses him off the most. <laughs> with At least with will, you could say there's some greater good. With play, it sounds so trivial. And so he says, well, it's play for him. It's suffering for me. If God's play 
means my suffering, then what kind of God is that? Now the fourth response. This final response is the one that blows us away and it's very difficult to understand. He says, it's her play, but it's suffering to me. The response is, but who are you? That's the the ultimate response. But who are you? He means to say, you're God. You don't have to ask about some God in the sky. You are God. At the very essence of your nature, beyond the body, beyond the mind, on a very deep level, perceivable only through much reasoning and subtle argument, perceivable really only through deep meditation, you will recognize that you are God. And that this world, with all of the people, like brothers and sisters and families and nations, all of it is just an appearance in you. So ultimately then, in Hinduism the prob- and Buddhism, the problem of suffering is solved by saying, what world? If you ask, why is there suffering in the world? You'll say, what world? God didn't do anything. Nothing is happening. It's all a dream. And that's probably really difficult to accept. But if you were in a dream right now, you wouldn't know you were in a dream, right? The dream would be real to you. And if you wake up tomorrow from the dream, everything that was real in the dream is no longer real in the waking world, right? Did you cause the dream? No, you didn't. You didn't like sit there and design the dream. Nobody did. The dream is just a dream. Things are happening in the dream. You are a person in the dream among other people. And some of those people in the dreams are doing well and and suffering. Some of those people are your friends, your family. But ultimately, this is a dream existence. And enlightenment is waking up to the fact that you were never iPhone number four or Nish. By the way, uh, you were never Sahara. You know, Sahar, sorry. You were never Sahar. You were never Nish. You were, you were Sahar, you were Nish, you were your brother, you were Westifer, you were all of that. And you only appreciate that upon waking up, right? So this is the solution to the problem of evil. There is none. There is no world. So then those who have schizophrenia don't, don't really have the capacity, huh? Those who have schizophrenia don't. In the absolute sense. <laughs> yes, they're not even there. There aren't even, those people don't even exist. You don't even exist. Sahar, there's no Sahar. The the Sahar that is grieving for the brother with schizophrenia, both of them are dream experience. It's real in the dream, but from the point of view of waking, it's not. So when you're awake, you no longer ask questions such as, why did that happen? Because it didn't. So everything beautiful and everything kind is also not real. Right, absolutely. But you have to ask the source of that beauty. You know, the source of that beauty is that self, that waking self. So yes, you are recognizing something in beauty. And by the way, beauty is also there in suffering. There is something beautiful about grieving. It's a type of love, right? So there's something beautiful after a good cry, right? It just feels like pure. So beauty is not just there in good things, but it's true. This reality goes beyond all good and bad. You're right. All kindness, kindness is predicated upon a a beneficent, uh, sorry, a giver and a receiver. There can't be any givers and receivers. Praiser, praise, and blamer, blamed. Giver, giving, and receiver, receiving. All of them are dissolved into the oneness. The I becomes all, and the all, the I becomes. You know, so you're right. Gone is all kindness. Gone is all good. Gone is all bad. Gone is sun. Gone is moon. This entire world is dissolved into one ecstatic waking, awakening into, I am not Sahar. I, am, I was all these people, and I'm none of these people. Nothing was happening. So when you meet God, you will really just be meeting yourself. And when that happens for you, Sahar, and it will happen, then you will not have this question because you'll realize what world?
Okay, another answer for you. This is from my tradition. We're Shaivas and we're Tantrikas. So our answer is, no, no, the world exists. It's real. The dream is real. In one sense, the dream is real. You're having this experience, no? It's ridiculous to dis- deny it as not real. That's kind of stupid. Hello? If you're like, wait, what do you mean it's not real? I mean, from an absolute point of view, it's not real. But I want an answer from here, from this point of view. I'm experiencing it. How can you tell me it's not real? <laughs> okay, here's why uh, the one we'll say hello. Until it was my turn to ask questions, and all of a sudden now they're screaming. But anyway, I'm just going to mute so I can hear the last part. Thank you. Of course, of course. So the next answer, and you might like this too. The next answer is this. So imagine you wanted to direct a movie. You wanted to make a play or a theater production. Wouldn't it be a really bad theater production if there wasn't some kind of suffering or some kind of tension in it? That would suck, right? If you wrote music and all of it was like pleasant, sweet notes without any blues notes or notes that sounded a bit dissonant and weird, it would not be a very nice piece of music. If you painted and you only used like pretty light colors, it wouldn't be a very good painting. You would need darker shades. So if you think about making art, anytime you make art, you need some level of tension, some level of dissonance and some level of conflict. Now you're okay with suffering in one instance if it's on the movie screen if it's a theater production, if it's a video game, in all three of these instances, you're perfectly okay with suffering. You, the creator of the play, purposefully put suffering there for the sake of art. You know? So in this tradition, we say God is the ultimate artist. God is not standing apart from her creation. She is her creation. She uses herself as the stage. She is all the actors on that stage. She is the director and she is the audience member. And by the way, it's improv. She also doesn't know what will happen. Anything could happen. She's infinite. So her expressions are infinite. So in the mess of all of that, there is suffering. It's undoubtable. There is schizophrenia. There is horrific violences that humans perpetuate against one another. There are earthquakes. All of this is happening, right? Okay. This suffering is there. And by the way, I can't say that your brother's suffering is more than yours. Your suffering on your behalf of your brother might actually be worse than his suffering of, because you don't know what he feels. You only know what you feel about what he feels and what he's told you about it. You see, you can't really gauge the suffering of others. In fact, when I was in India, I would see like this, like rural countryside Indians with absolutely nothing who are like the very depths of poverty, happy. They were full of like energy and vibrancy. But then I go to Starbucks here in Brentwood. I moved to America five years ago. I see more suffering in a Brentwood Starbucks than I do in like an Indian pastoral countryside. Suffering is subjective. So you then can't say, okay, there's horrible suffering in the world. If you were the sufferer, you might actually experience that as beauty. And even now, as you're suffering on behalf of your brother, you can recognize that there is a meaning a beauty to it. Don't you feel more alive when you feel like right now, this moment, this discussion, aren't you so alive? It might not be happy or good, but it's alive. So you could say that's God's art. God's art includes includes suffering because she wanted to experience it. If your arm got blown off in a war, you wouldn't feel that pain. My theory is that God had created a world in which if real suffering happened, like the arm blew off or whatever, your body gets numb to that pain. Or right before you die, there's often moments of beauty. Like my friend was drowning and she saw that the lights were playing in the pool. You know, like when you're actually in the midst of some serious physical suffering, like Westerfer will tell you, it's ecstasy. Like you're in a surgery without uh, anesthetics. It's pain at first, but then it's ecstasy. 
honestly, from this point of view, everything is ecstasy. The only suffering is the suffering in the mind. And that's beautiful too. So that's my final answer. My final answer is it's God's play, but you could say it's God's art. It's her Leela. It's her theater production. And what kind of theater production doesn't have some conflict, some drama, you know? <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. That made a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I hope you enjoyed the answers. What a beautiful question. The problem of evil. Why is there suffering? Thank you. My dear. Um, Sahar, I have to say one more thing. You know how you console your child when she's crying? That's how the Buddha would console you when you're crying. There, there. It's no big deal. You'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're all babies to her the lord okay dear thank you so happy that you're here all right so um let's see uh, theory if god is perfect oh my, uh, mikey if god is perfect is also likely an aggregate of many beings yeah 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 this is beautiful yeah to balance itself you know emerson has that theory law of compensation yeah you brother oh no yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, truly. Truly. Beautiful, Mikey. Beautiful. And Sahar, if you get a chance to read that, it's very beautiful. Okay, so here's Anna. Here's Chandra. Here's Deborah. Dave is here. And I know I had Pooja and Dolan who had questions last time that I didn't get to take. So I know Dolan stepped out for a little bit. But Pooja, if you'd like to ask your question from last week, you're welcome to. If you still have it. Yes. Then maybe we can hear from Orion a bit. Talk a little bit about some Madhyamaka, some Nagarjuna, some Tibetan Buddhism. Huh? And then Rebecca is here and I'd like to check in with Rebecca. So Puja, feel free whenever you can. If you're available, you can ask. Um, mean, meantime, let's hear from Orion maybe. If you have any observations or things to add to today's lecture, anything to say with regards to Buddha Purnima and how are you, you know, all of that. <laughs> I've been I've been doing really well. Um, I will say that I've been sick for the last week or so. Um, it's been an intense flu season for me. But one thing I can say while um having sickness is that it is it has been a great time for practice. For some reason, there's something about sickness. Well, my practice is Dzogchen. And so we rest in view. And all I can say is in my own subjective personal experience with it, sickness has allowed me to double down on that. In the midst of not even seated meditation, but lying there, cold sore, fever, sore throat. In the midst of all of it, you're perfectly content in where you are with it. There is no desire to run away from it or go elsewhere from it. Exactly where you are with the suffering is perfectly where you have to be with it. And there's nowhere else that I would rather be from it than that in any moment. I love that you said the view, samyak drishti. So in Dogjen, rest in the view. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, What does it mean for a person to rest in the view? Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> oh, the view first must be shown to you by your qualified teacher. 
it is the view of the Dharmakaya, the boundless open awareness itself, Dharmakaya awareness, emptiness. And we have something called child luminosity and mother luminosity, mother ground luminosity. Mother ground luminosity is present, always will be there, pristine open awareness. That is always there. What is shown to you is child luminosity. You are shown a glimpse of it. It's a bit of it. It is your job to sustain the view, as in you practice day in and day out, every day, all day, to sustain and maintain that, the view. Over time, at first, it's like you're here and the view is there. Like you're looking here. At first, you're looking at your hand. But if you open your awareness a little bit, you can actually see through your hand. And at first, it's like that. It is as your hand is here, the view's over there. But as you go along, they start to blend. Child luminosity and mother luminosity unite in this stabilization. And there you rest freely. And in there is where we have um, these analogies like sky-like mind. You rest mind in sky-like openness and you simply rest there. And that's all there is to do. Any thought that arises in sky-like mind is not separate from the emptiness of the Dharmakaya awareness itself. And so there's no need to push the thought or antidote the thought. As you gain more stability in practice, what happens is that each thought that arises becomes like riding in water. There is no need to do anything to it. It naturally subsumes by itself upon arising. This is what's called natural liberation. Each thought is naturally liberated as it arises. And this is a practice that is maintained throughout the entire day. There is no stopping this practice. You can't say, okay, I'm going to meditate here and look at the view. No, that will not work. It must be maintained 24 hours a day. It is, an, it is a practice that is my heart practice that I would share openly with anyone who has questions about it. Because I found that it has hid the heart of the illusion. From my own personal experience with it, I can openly say that all that arises is a magical display of mind. There is nothing to fear in anything that arises in you, in front of you. You know, I, my favorite thing is how we were saying we want to just get together and compare the tantric hinduism forms the tantric buddhism forms but i feel like that conversation wouldn't go anywhere because it's the same thing i guess that would be the exciting thing like for instance westerfer was asking earlier about vijnana and the avishaya awareness of of the advaita vedanta tradition and i think you'd be happy to know that abhinava calls paravak which is the supreme word of the goddess of that tradition he calls her matar sadbhava which means something like mother existence or mother luminosity since existence and consciousness are one, right? So you get mother yeah. luminosity and then child luminosity would be chid abhasa, the reflection, the minuscule yeah. glimpse of, yeah. So you've got yeah, these two yeah, things, yeah. mother and child or uh, the, the dharmakaya and vijnana. So then there's no tension there. You know, there's yeah. a tension, yeah, there's no tension between Advaita and Buddhism because Vijnana is not the same as that Buddhist idea. I mean, the Advaita idea of awareness. This would be more like it. Dharmakaya, the broads. Also, the word that we give is Chidambaram, 
which means the sky of consciousness, which you seem to have behind you right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah. one final point, Kashemaraja talks about thoughts against the sky like autumn clouds, because in India, you know, especially in the north, autumn clouds congeal and disappear very quickly. And I love your writing in water. That's beautiful. That, the, cl- the cloud one is an essential analogy that is used often in tradition. Yeah. Each thought arises as cloud in sky. They will go when they go. But I prefer the, the writing in water as a more experiential understanding of it because that is what it's like. The thought arises, you do nothing to it. Naturally, as it comes up, it goes away. Naturally dissolves in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Nothing to be done. Yes, mother, in every form that appears in the universe, in every cognition that arises in my mind, they invariably afford me an opportunity to perceive you and embrace you. Yes, and that is, that is exactly it. We, the view, you're glimpsing at mind every moment. That's why I blend bhakti with it because it blends so perfectly. You view mind, everything and all things, always. Every thought is ma. Mm-hmm. See her form and see through the thoughts. Actually, it also speaks, the hand analogy that you gave speaks to our conversation earlier, Westerfer, about asambhavana and viparita bhavana, right? So you could say maybe um, before a person sees the hand, before they're given the view, um, they maybe have doubt or uh, avidya, just like, garden variety ignorance and they get the view and it's like not clear it's like kind of like this that's asambhavana i don't see the hand and then you get the hand but then it's still not what you're looking through it's maybe what you look through some of the time like notoriously in lecture and the moment like lecture ends or the book gets put back in the shelf gone back to being a basic bitch like in the world like ah so yeah when the view i, I like that becomes what you look through predominantly then that's when you get nididhyasana integration but interestingly, it, it's, it's like the way you say about how it dissolves, because a lot of people sometimes say, isn't this just cognitive reappraisal? Aren't you just reframing? Aren't you just squeezing some kind of new packaging onto reality that doesn't, I mean, it makes us happy, but doesn't necessarily have to map on one-to-one with reality, right? So the idea of looking through a view, the question becomes, well, is that view totally fabricated? Are you just looking through rose tinted glasses? Yes. Go on. Yes. Now to describe this view. Oh, I think you might hear the music, but doesn't worry about that. Um, yeah. yeah. So this view, this view is pure awareness. What you recognize in view is Dharmakaya itself. You are shown Dharmakaya. And the thing, in, at first, when you first start, the view is something different than your waking reality. It is seen and felt and experienced to be... Um, apart from what you normally experience. And so you might say you're, you're fabricating or you are adding something new to reality. But as you practice more and more, because here's the thing, in experiential practice, when you practice with this, the view cannot be, the view cannot be made up because everything that you think of, of what the view is, when we, when, we, when, I, see, when I speak stabilization, it's not, a, it's not a right word for it because it's like you're stabilizing something that you found. It's not like that at all. Because what practitioners usually do is that they think of an idea of the view after they get a glimpse. But after a while, they attach some sort of experience to it. Maybe they felt like no thoughts and they're like, oh, that's a view. Or they felt some sensation in the body and they're like, oh, that's it. And so every time they sit, they try to recreate that somehow in their mind or the mind recreates that, attempts to. But then after trying and trying and failing and failing, you finally give up all fabrications of mind you finally sit there with 
absolutely nothing to be made of mind. And you rest in that sky-like space. And there's nothing to be made of it. But that cannot be done until you finally given up. And all, all along as you practice, I will say is that many things are accomplished, meaning that your attachments fall away. Because what you create from mind, from emptiness itself, this, this no thing, what you attach, what you create is based on your attachments. And when you begin to realize you cannot create it, your attachments begin to fall off. And so you rest more and more in this non-attached, non-desirable state of mind. And even then, you keep going. Beautiful. Good night, dear song. I hope you enjoyed the Buddhism. Well, I guess really it was more about like atheism lecture, but I hope you liked it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think Abhinava Gupta says it nicely with the Shuddha and Ashuddha Vikalpa. So Vikalpa would then be like that experience or that cognition that we wrongly attribute to the view. So it's like some thought versus the thing versus the thought about the thing, right? So that there are two types of thoughts. One is the Ashuddha Vikalpa, which are all wrong views. I am the body, I am the mind, you know. Then there's the Shuddha Vikalpa, which is the pointing or the teaching. Then there is the Avikalpa Paramarshena, the immersion into no view. And that is the Madhyamaka kind of like, there's no proposition here. There's, it's not this, it's not that. So interestingly enough, Abhinava Gupta offers another proof. And I wanted to see what you think of this. And his proof is like, okay, let's say, he gives three responses. And the first is, let's say it is a fabrication. It's a kind of a view that's superimposed onto everything. We could do worse. That's the first, like, like, if it works, okay, fine. But then he goes on to say, um, there's a difference between a view that works versus a view that doesn't. If it maps onto reality, it is stable, meaning it's very, nothing will kind of break it. But if it doesn't map onto reality, then it can be broken. Hence, Nagarjuna's breaking, right? Perfect. That's exactly how I would describe it, is that the thing about if you hold on to an idea of the view is that everything in reality will somehow shake it. It will break it. I will say this. If you think you have an idea of what the view is, something will happen. Suffering will happen, which you will suffer. And then you'll have thoughts about things and you'll get your whole cycle continues. It will fall apart on you because that is the power of it is that it is this no thing to it. And every time you try to superimpose a thing to it, it will fall apart on you. And that's how you know when you are the one I received the view from, he will always say, even if you are, well, the first part is, to address your first statement is, even if you have some basic understanding of the practice and you are unable to fully accomplish the practice, you will have a happy life, guaranteed. The second one is that if you are able to continue this practice fully and truly, and you're able to um, accomplish it, that is the end of your suffering. Mm. There is no more needing to be done there. It is accomplished. I'm going to have to ask you to read. Um, can you go over back to the second statement you made? The second statement was about the proof between Shuddha and Ashuddha Vikalpas. How do you know which one maps onto reality? And mm -hmm. Abhinava seems to be implying that reality has an energy to it. Of course, Shiva Shakti, right? And mm -hmm. there's an energy to reality. So anybody like the Rinpoche you spoke about, you know, Guruji, if he is immersed in that, then whatever view arises, and you started your teaching with qualified teacher. Right, because there's a qualified teacher has access immediately to that state, and so whatever arises gets its energy from reality itself, and so it's a high energy like thought construct, like Westerfer and I were talking about last week with thoughts and prana. So that is a shuddha vikalpa and is incredibly stable because it maps onto reality, can't be broken. Whereas an ashuddha vikalpa is energy is so weak, so it's fraught. It only gets a little bit of reality, so it like breaks apart with the next experience. 
that's how he says the difference. You, you prod it, he says. Abhinav almost says, prod all your views. And the one that is resistant is the true one. Resistant to all prodding. Yeah. I, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh-huh. I mean, what? The Himalayas, all neighbors, all sharing this stuff, which is so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah Parvasambhava. It's all he, this is all it, that the view of Dzogchen is what the Tantra, the Vajrayana, is, it's melted into it. It is not separate from it. Yes. It is, the entirety of the view is melted and merged with the practices. When you v- visualize your deity and then subsume the deity into pure form, what is that pure form? Mm-hmm. It is that emptiness there. And you keep training like that in the visualizations and so forth. Yes, yes. Okay, I know you would never affirm the Dharmakaya as a thing, but why, you know, because Dharmakaya, body of Dharma, it has a substantive kind of connotation to it. What do we make of this? Okay. Sambhogakaya. Sambhogakaya. So you have three layers now we deal with. You have the Dharmakaya, which is the formless, empty, fast. You have the Sambhogakaya, which is now the aliveness of the Dharmakaya. Yes. This is where all your forms and displays and magical happenings occur. It occurs from the Sambhogakaya nature of mind. It illuminates the Dharmakaya. And then you have the Nirmanakaya, the moving, the moving aspects of mind. Mm. This you can attribute to thoughts moving. Nothing is wrong. All three are not separate, obviously. They're all three are one. And so when you rest mind in Dharmakaya nature, in that state, you begin to realize that everything around you has that aliveness you speak of. It has that vitality. It has that ananda. It has all of it. Because that is a natural aliveness of reality itself. And you get there by simply resting in the Dharmakaya awareness continuously. And all else is naturally present and displayed for you. Mm-hmm. So the way you said about how the... Um, Sambhogakaya manifest or you know that language that you used I want to run this by you so we have an Abhinava Gupta Prakasha and Vimarsha Prakasha being the emanating forth of awareness but it requires a Vimarsha so objects make awareness manifest so that Vimarsha is the level of like the magic show all the forms that can appear cognitions and perceptions and then this Nirmanakaya so the word Nirmana no mind Kaya like mana meaning mind right like yeah, I, I believe so, yeah. Nirmanaka is the body of no mind. So, like, this would be the, not to say the lowest, but the most formal yeah. of them, right? The most, yeah, like, yeah, gross. Yeah. So, you have gross, yeah. subtle, causal almost, right? These three yeah. worlds. Yes. And could would, would I be able to say that, like, the four levels of the word, Vaikarivak, Pashanti, all that, like, I could say, the gross part is the mind, you know, and that is the moving part. It's that, that's yeah. the least real, you know, but still yeah. real, but. Yeah, you know, most good. And, and, then, because, and, ult- and ultimately, Nirmalakaya is Dharmakaya, is yes. Sambhogakaya. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, you but can't say the three discrete. Yeah. Yes. So, what would you make then a final question for you is of, you know, because in Buddhism, I know the, the, imp- the, the Sambhogakaya, the aliveness is very important because I know a lot of work is done to distinguish this state of emptiness yeah. with its aliveness from the inert kind of state of the mind where you just kind of no thoughts, right? Because <laughs> a lot of people will feel that and say, I did it, that's emptiness, but no, that's just mental inertia. Yeah. And they they miss they miss it. it that that Sambhogakaya nature of mind is essential. It's feel your feelings. Feel like and this is why I like the uh Tantra um talk we had the idea of method is that feel what you feel. It is the aliveness of being. 
your emotions, your perception, your thoughts, it's okay, have them. They are perfectly alive and vital in this universe. But know that freedom comes when you're able to rest in their nature, in the essence of them, which is the combination of the Dharmakaya emptiness and the aliveness of it. And in that way, you have no need to be attached to it because it's not other from you at that point. Right. Yeah. It is simply being there. Yes, yes. How will you remove something that is you and where will you put it when you remove it, right? Like that kind yep. of yeah. So, you know, in Buddhism, there's this, like you would say, one teacher told me, broadly speaking, there are some traditions that are more uh, paramananda prapti oriented and others that are more dukkha nivritti oriented. You know, and Buddhism seems at the very beginning to be a dukkha nivritti, a t- tradition premised around ending the problem of suffering without making any kind of positive affirmation as to what that would look like, only via negativa, right? So it's yeah. not suffering, but I can't tell you what it is. So there are, <laughs> like, for instance, the Hindu tantric tradition is very big on affirming phrases like mahasukha mahananda in some sense mahakaruna to me sounds a little bit like it like an affirming phrase of some compassion or whatever would you say that in this tradition like dharmakaya swaboga you know like the samboga sorry samboga it gives it a kind of quality in which that there's an ananda aspect you know so you could say it ends suffering but it gives you aliveness right there's something that you i think that's a, that's a essential point where i see that with Buddhism, they you, they go to the first part you spoke about, but there's this whole realm, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, that is rich with the aliveness part. Mm-hmm. That's why you know it isn't just it isn't no thing, and then there's nothing really to experience a affirm life affirming there. No, it, there is. There, these I know practitioners who are Vajrayanists, who are Dzogchen practitioners. They are very much alive with it all, because when you practice it, there is no choice in the aliveness. It's vital. The universe is vital. You can't run from that. It's there in front of you. Right. And you feel it in the poems of Thich Nhat Hanh, for instance, right? And I think he's a Theravadin Buddhist, but having attained, you know... Yeah, I think the same thing. <laughs> yeah, like the Zens talk about Buddha natures in the chairs, like an aliveness. Because here in America, I know we probably meet, you probably met as many as I have. Yeah, he's a Zen, right? He's a Zen, so Buddha nature, yes. So that makes sense. I was thinking like, it would be kind of strange for a Theravadin to write all these poems to Mother Nature. But <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, he has a sense of aliveness. He loves the plants. He's got that interbeing idea, you know. But I'm sure you've met a lot of these so-called Buddhists here in the West who are really veiled nihilist, right? Who are like yeah. kind of cynical and just like, love to pick fights with others and argue with them, but then there's no sense of joy or aliveness, or even if it's there, it's kind of like a put on humor, you know? So it seems like Nagarjuna was very worried about that. The nihilism implied in emptiness and the internalism implied in making emptiness a thing. Yeah. 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 Like I will say that um, from what I've experienced with the practice and speaking to practitioners, like Tibetan practitioners example, is that practices like Dzogchen, and these higher Vajrayana practices are very, um, they're not publicly displayed in the culture. Right. It is well known that these practices, you know, you need to have been with the monastery for a while or come in as a Westerner having known someone or something. Yes. Because they're very sacred practices. They're the, they're the essence of what they continue down the lineage with. And so these life-affirming parts of it, I see, I, I think that's why it's not widely known in the west by people who just picked up buddhism it's not in their face like this is what you know what it's like because they get like jack cornfield like theravadin burmese style like kind of yeah so okay one last thing (laughs) but i want to know like kind of as a biographical detail if you don't mind sharing like um 
you know, you mentioned your Guruji, the Rinpoche, and then there's, this is an initiatory tradition in which, you know, there must be a living awakened state only for the fire to pass by. So we have you an have outreach. Past, yeah, we have initiation rituals called Diksha. You know, and we do the whole, there's like a ceremony involved. And I know Vajrayana Buddhism is ritualistic too. Yeah. Did you have an initiation ceremony? Did you have not like a... For the, well, Vajrayana, no. No, oh, not for Vajrayana. Um, but I, my practice and my heart practice has been um, Dzogchen. You mm-hmm. don't need Vajrayana um, initiations to do Dzogchen. Okay, just yeah. With, uh, just with um, the other one, uh, slipping me, Dzogchen and the Chod one. Chodya, uh, Chodchen. Yes. Uh, that's like pretty yeah. bonpo kind of oriented right like chodzen it's like uh yeah yeah they're state. very uh yeah fierce fear like you know sit in that burial ground and yeah. summon all of them let's go sure. yeah i'm a hungry ghost come be hungry ghost feed i remember yeah. neil donald walsh's yeah. kind of so when did you so are you were you born to this tradition is it part of your like family heritage how did you come to it how did how does one discover you know yeah, kind of autobiographical if you don't mind i know i have to say um karmically yeah. <laughs> I, I am inclined to say that i am inclined to say that it is as that is what the tradition says it's that if you you will find so china is very like it is very simple in the instructions and they don't give you a lot of preliminaries to it and so for you to look at it understand it and even want to practice it you have to be karmically drawn to it because it it's so painstakingly simple that you have to keep going back you have to have this dedication in you to keep going at it keep going at it because the rules don't really change the philosophy of it there's nothing for you to really get into philosophy this is the practice this is the method this is the view that's it (laughs) that's it and yeah Oh, beautiful, brother. So beautiful. So Kaz is here and Kaz is very curious about Zogjen. A long time ago, we were talking about it. Is Adya Shanti, would you say that that's like a, like a Zogjen kind of inspired teacher? Because Adya Shanti has this very tantric, you know, maybe Westerfer can speak to that because, you know, Westerfer, you're familiar with Adya Shanti's work. How do you think it compares to this form of Vajrayana, Tantra, kind of Zogjen world that we've been talking about? Thanks for asking that because I've been thinking about that. Um which this is the first time that I've really heard about Dzogchen. So thank you so much for this, Orion. I'd love to hear you talk about it. It's intoxicating. Um, but uh, I would say the relationship to, to thoughts is, is very, very similar of, um, you know, uh, recognizing, um, recognizing that there's nothing to be done about them. You know, that they're, they're, they're going just as they're coming. Um and yeah, I, I I would say the whole the simplicity of it and the the almost non doing aspect of it, like you keep saying resting in the view, and that's exactly that's exactly what it is. It's not this feeling like I am I'm sitting here doing a specific thing, paying paying attention to like my breath or whatever it is um which also why it's so versatile why you can do it 24 7 right you just it's it's the natural state that you're resting in yeah yeah Um, essentially yeah so that that seems pretty similar to me in that way yeah it especially when it comes so the thoughts part it's a bit the the subtlety is very different with letting the thoughts come and go because as you're off the mat practice we call it on the mat off the mat practice off on the mat 
you're you're attempting to at first rest in the view as much as you can. The view is, you know, whatever you perceive it to be at that time, so on you. But off the bat, what happens is that it isn't that you're letting the thoughts just come and go. It is that you get to a point in practice where you begin to see through the thoughts. And that means that as a thought comes up, you directly see it. But upon seeing it, it disappears. Just like that. Upon recognition of thought, the thought is gone. And after a while of doing that, you accomplish that part and then you move on. The six yogas and Naropa are referenced here. You move on to the different stages of this meditative technique on emptiness until you're finally accomplished. Yeah. That's really interesting. I was really hoping that today, you know, the course of our Buddha Purnima conversation, we could get into some Tsongkhapa and some Naropa. And, you know, uh, I love Asanga's work, you know, Asanga's nine stages of the path of meditation. It's oh. like, you know, that one Asanga, it's like, I, the, the, the Buddhists are the, the greatest systematizers. Yes. Like nine and four <laughs> and three. And, you know, like, it's great. Yeah. It's listing. Yeah. So categories are very interesting to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's a light. Ah. Yes. Ah, wait, I'm sorry. Mahamudra, that's the name. I'm sorry. Oh, for no reason. My God. Yeah, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, those are the two you'll find as um, direct uh, seeing practices or end goal practices of resting in emptiness, different stages of attaining to that. Right. I've heard it con- uh, translated as Gnostic contemplative oriented practices. You know, mm-hmm. your contemplations, they're very subtle. That's the difference. Uh, we would call it shaktupaya, you know, working with the view, like a very pure and fine thought construct, yeah. shaktupaya, you know. And then the moment of perceiving a thought and looking through it to the awareness in which it vibrates, that would be shambhava upaya, immediate entry into this avikalpa, thoughtless. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. That's exactly, yeah, that's it, yeah. Yes. Orion, do you have anything to say about Mahamudra? I have a friend who's really into it, but I and I love what I've heard, but it's been very little. Ah, Mahamudra. The reason I my path never went into Mahamudra is that here's the thing: in Zogchen and Mahamudra, they're essentially the same thing. The difference is the key difference is that in Mahamudra, you're given by a supervised teacher very definite steps to follow. The teacher will be watching you as you meditate, as you accomplish the different yogas of Naropa. Um, at first, you know, single point of concentration. Then you move on to some point as the, the yoga of dancing stillness and so on and so on. Well, in, Zog- and all, in Zogchen, the beauty is that what I find really cool is all of the yogas are accomplished in Zogchen at any given moment. The only thing is that as I like Nish said at the beginning is that all instructions arise from source. And it's simply that in Mahamudra, they category it. They, they give you stages so you can proceed, proceed, proceed. While in Dzogchen, you're there. At any point in time, you can be in any one of them. It is your job to keep only the view. And that's all you do. And it's, a, it's a struggle at first. It is a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The mind likes to create things of what things should be. <laughs> yes, right, right. Because, I mean, it's not actually doable by you as a person, right? Nope. <laughs> that's, that's why it's so hard. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they, they say the, um, the struggle, the tightening up is method. Mm-hmm. 
the wisdom is the relaxation. And the yeah. union of this is practice. Mm. You tighten yes, up your struggle all... and then you... <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's so good. And that reminds me of Adyashanti too. Uh, there's a thing he says a lot, which is that his, his spiritual path was the path of failure. Uh-huh. Yep. I agree to that. <laughs> wow. This is so great. This is just geeking out about the finer points of deep meditative practice. You know, that's essentially what Tantra is. You could say Tantra is a doctrine of upayas, methods, experiences, and systematizing those experiences in a cogent philosophy. So exactly this could happen. Right, so exactly like a bunch of geeks can get together and be like, let's talk. <laughs> so Jen, let's talk Mahamudra, which by the way, it means the great attitude, which I think is so cool. Oh man. So I, I don't know if I if it's just me, but I feel like maybe um everyone you might enjoy hearing about the six six yogas. I don't know if you could do a brief walkthrough, um, Orion, if, if it's even possible or like uh, doable to kind of say I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you on it. I'll yeah, get back to you. Exactly, because that might be cool. You know, I think that I a lot of interest in Zogjan, but also we have to walk carefully because we don't want to, you know, in Tantra, for instance, there's a lot that we don't say, not because it's, you know, it's like it wouldn't serve anybody and it might lose its, its initiatory tradition. So cool, cool, cool. Um, anyone have anything to add, to say, you know, any questions? This is such a rich discussion that I could just do it all night. It's so nice. There's, there's Amal there smiling. Hello, Amal. There's like a small thing that kind of was coming up for me when I was listening, but it was kind of in a way an obstacle on the same um, path that uh, at a certain point in like the subtlety of looking at these things, there's even like, um, you kind of question like who, who is it that's stabilizing in the view? Like that was something that, I um you like I use that question a lot and um it was useful to a certain extent. Mm. And I think it was actually in a way an obstacle. Um, because you know, I spent a lot of time with I I resonate a lot with what you were describing, Orion. I think we kind of uh had a similar approach. But um yeah, it's kind of this idea like at a certain point, even the one who's stabilizing in the view is perceived in it. And um, maybe it's one of those things that uh, it ends up being not useful because you can kind of get stuck on um, kind of this identity that is coming into the view and out of the view and this kind of thing. Uh, the one thing I can say about yeah. this is that one one part I will go to, and for me, what this was was that the thing that ask is that a thought that's moving, that's asking that within the view that is absent, that is not present, that is not there, and it is different than not having the thought. See, the view is very subtle. It it isn't like just not having a thought. It, it's beyond that, and out the view, there's this thing that keeps questioning it. If you are practicing Dzogchen, the three vital points are recognize the view, stabilize view, con conduct. That's a bit of a bodhisattva conduct stuff. But essentially, once you're attempting to recognize, you've you've at this point in practice of this practice, you've done contemplation. You've done the preliminary works needed 
for you to simply sit there and do nothing. (laughs) You've done the convincing of the self. And a large part of it is gaining confidence and full Vajra, indestructible confidence and certainty in the view, in this state of emptiness that is alive and vital and awake. It's called empty wakefulness. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, I think it's just a subtle, um, because it feels like some form of personal identity is the one who's stabilizing in the view. But um, yeah, at times it's been more useful and other times it's been like, um, not there's not really an answer to it, you know? So I appreciate your perspective and sharing it on it. Appreciate you. Yeah, that we, we should be very grateful because that was a very liberal and gracious exposition of Zogjen, which a lot of times is very alchemical, like tantric texts can be because we, we speak in sandhya bhasha the twilight language you know so it's not like advaita vedanta where it's clear the sanskrit there you there's you natvam deho nate deho bokta karta navabhavan like what clear sanskrit it, you could not get any other meaning from that sanskrit than you are not the body the body is not yours you're not the doer but in tantra you get all these like articulations of you know words that are poetic and allegorical. So I think we should all be very grateful to Orion for giving us so lucid and brilliant an exposition of some very closely guarded esoteric practices. So it's a lot of care and tenderness, you know, that we receive this and with reverence, we think and contemplate together. It's very nice. Yeah. Beautiful. How, how mature a state, you know, like all of us, if we can simply sit there and do nothing. Wow. You know, but that's like, you have to, factor in that the first step in all of this is not on a single point of concentration. And most of us are still working on that. You know, so <laughs> it was like kind of a step-by-step. And again, the, 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 the frustrating thing about these Gnostic tantric traditions is that there's no syllabus. There's no prescribed course. You can't go from one step to another systematically. And that's why with Raja Yoga or something like that, it's very systemat- systematic and scientific and welcoming. And so you don't need that close supervision of a guru at every step of the way. Though we still have it, right? So we're lucky, Amal, in the sense that we have a living guru to watch us and show us and protect us each step of the way. What is it? Rest in what you are. Be aware of what you are not. Rest in what you are. That's kind of a Vedantic maxim. What you are aware of, you are not. Be aware of what you are not. Rest in what you are. Ah, nice, nice. Okay, let's see. Who else is wanting to say hello? Ah, I see. Wait, wait, wait. Go back up to the top. Yes, Ria, please, dear. Hi. Um, okay. Just a quick question from um, earlier when you were uh, going through your going through the prayers before the lecture. Um, I remember hearing you talking about um, well, praying for the causal no the subtle body to be um dried up and the causal body to be um burned away and i was wondering if you could expound on that yeah yeah that's bhuta shuddhi is a tantric puja practice of spiritualizing oneself before performing the worship so it's a very important part in bengali eastern indian tantric kind of goddess worship pujas uh, because there's this this motto that we have is only god can worship god it's a very interesting idea because 
prior to Tantra and prior to um, non-dual Tantra, puja wasn't really a thing. You know, there was, of course, Vedic yagna. It's like a different kind of Vedic ceremony, but it was very different style from puja. So puja appears, but in its first form, puja is dualistic. Me as a jiva, as an individual, limited being, trapped in matter in this degenerate, imminent world, are now, I'm now calling out to this transcendent deity. Good night, dear cat, cat G. I say cat G, but it's also cat G. <laughs> yes. So I would do puja then in the tantric sense of the word, a dualistic tantric sense of the word, to call out to that deity and say, please come remove my cataracts in my vision that prevent me from seeing you in all things. Or, or uh, that would be weird to say, prevent me from being with you in this transcendental plane, you know? So a traditional puja doesn't require that I be God to worship God. In fact, that's blasphemy. That's heresy. How can you, a limited individual, be God? You know, crazy to think that. And why would God worship God? Worship is for an individual bound soul, a sakala, to relate to the oversoul, the ultimate transcendental being. That's what worship is for, right? Not so, says the non-dualistic tantrika. The non-dualist tantra, or shaktadvaita, you could say, um, started innovating. And, and they would say, no, worship is the play of the Lord. So the Lord manifests herself as me, an individual, in order to worship herself as the Lord using the flowers, which are nothing other than herself, using words and mantras, which are nothing. Other. So it's worshiping God as God for the sake of God using God. You know, it's, it's a phrase that in Sanskrit uses all the predicates by, with, for, under, above. And it's just God, 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 God. You know, so there's no relationship. There's a provisional duality, but an actual ultimate non-duality. So in order to do ritual in this way, we have to both, we have to operate on a dualistic level and go through the motions and pray and be devotional, but we must rest in the view of the fact that this isn't a dualistic kind of practice. It's a non-dual expression through duality. So we have to do this practice called Buddha Shuddhi. Buddha means elements, Shuddhi means purification. If I don't do Buddha Shuddhi and I just go right into worship, it's going to be dualistic worship. If I do Buddha Shuddhi, it's probably still going to be dualistic worship. Honestly, to be honest with you, probably still, but if I do it right, if by the grace of God, I do Buddha Shuddhi right, then it's no longer dualistic worship. It's non-dualistic worship. So Buddha Shuddhi is where you sit and you visualize. Don't do this, by the way. It requires like kind of initiation and guidance from a guru. It can be kind of disturbing and dangerous to do without this, this guidance. But essentially, you sit there and in principle, I'll teach it to you in principle, not in practice. In principle, you raise Kundalini Shakti up the spine where it sleeps in the muladhara, the root chakra, causing you to experience this world as gross and physical, you now take it up the spine. So from the root chakra, you bring it up through all the five centers. We have six centers in yoga, five centers in traditional tantra, seven in Vedanta, but it doesn't matter. You just take it up the spine. So you do this mantra, which is Om Mula Shingata Chira um, Shushumna uh, Patena Jiva Shivam Parama Shiva Pade Yojayami Swaha, which means I am enmeshed in the elements. Oh Shiva, please walk up the way of the Shushumna, Shushumna Patena Yojayami. Please, please, Shiva, go up, go up the spine. And you say, Jwala, Jwala, Prajwala, Prajwala, Swaha, Songhang, Songha, Hamsa, Sohang. You know, you're doing these mantras to say, I am Shiva, I am Shiva, Shiva, illumine, illumine, light up, light up. You're doing all these invocations. And yes, part of it is, O air, O yang, Linga Sharira, Shushaya, Shushaya, O air, dry up, dry up this subtle body. 
You know, so you've gone up from the physical body. Now you're in the mind world. You've got to dry it up. Use air to dry up the subtle body. You're going to need something stronger though for the causal body. And you say, oh, rang, sankocha sharira, daha, daha, fire, burn up, burn up the causal body. So at this point, you have dissolved physical body, dissolved subtle body, dissolved causal body, and you're dwelling in pure awareness, pristine consciousness, as we would say in Buddhism. So now, then you can worship. Isn't that sweet? The idea that worship can only happen from a (laughs) non-person. But um, your description of it kind of reminds me of like a prayer that I would hear in church every now and then uh, when praying for the Holy Spirit to come in. Uh, It would be, they would ask for the Holy Spirit to increase while we decrease. Exactly the same. Yeah, because I mean, like I've, I think, I mean, to my understanding, the Holy Spirit is like the um, the effects of the Holy Spirit are similar to like what's happening, what happens during like a Kundalini awakening. Exactly, precisely, one okay. to one. What we would call feeling the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. The, okay. the, I, I use that phrase a lot actually to be filled with Holy Spirit of Holy Ghost, like because it causes people to you know experience glossolalia in which they speak in tongues. It causes them to mm-hmm. contort and move into shapes and express themselves and sing and dance. That's exactly what happens in a good tantric puja. All the yoga poses that we do together are contortions that came about spontaneously as a result of being infused with the Holy Ghost during puja. You know, so yeah, like if, you know, we're having these talks together, if ever we feel a kind of upliftment, that's that, that same Shakti, which we would call the Holy Ghost, just, oh, it's true spirituality is really a conveyance, not of words or teachings, but of spirit, of Shakti, of Holy Ghost. Right. Yeah. I just had a very interesting thought. Like I um like I've grown up in a, a black well black churches. And yeah. so um I don't know if you've seen like videos of like when people catch the spirit and they're running up and down the uh yeah, the aisles yeah, yeah. and everything. And so I'm wondering like what would have you know what could happen if they kind of took that practice of you know creating their own yoga from like what they remember from like being in that zone and everything. Like I don't know, just say. So. Just a passing thought. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think people in like, especially Southern churches, Black churches, where there's like more gospel and, you know, they're uniquely predisposed to know what we're talking about in Tantra, you know, because we use music a lot. It's like gospel music that kind of, you know, that fifth, there's that vibe of the, the first and the fifth. And there's something that lives in between the first and the fifth that's very transportive. And the way that these situations, I'm sure you can testify, like allow for that give the space for outbursts and emotionalism and running up and down. And, you know, there's like little Richard and these powerful preachers <laughs> who are pure, like Shakti oriented preachers. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I've seen, yeah, I've definitely spoken to a lot of people from that setting and it seems like one-to-one a tantric puja. And like, apparently, I, I don't know, I'm not actually attended the service, but apparently from what I've heard. And now again, I'm hearing from you is a tantric puja done, right. Is a good day at like, you know, one of these churches full of spirit. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. It's really fun to see the the correlations between. Yeah. You know, the problem is though, a lot of times, even if it happens in church or the thing, you'll notice a lot of people, like say they have these experiences, they might go back to being the same miserable asshole they were before, right? It's like sometimes they become Mm -hmm. even worse. So these things, they can really do it. Like these rituals and these really lift up Kundalini. But if there isn't proper practice and integration, that thing's going to come right down and perhaps go even lower than it was before. (laughs) So that's the danger. um, 
Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. Um, like we would have these really, really good um, retreats, spiritual retreats. And um, like there would be like uh, slaying in the spirit, like speaking in tongues, like all of these, like, you know, fruits of the spirit and all of that. And um, but as soon as you come, came home, like you like ride that way for a while. The next thing you know, you're back to your everyday way of thinking and doing yes. and wondering, like, how can I get back to that um, that that feeling again and right and you feel kind of empty from it and yeah and then people sell it you know there are people who are like okay yeah. I, I now i'm gonna commercialize because you know now you feel like okay i have to go on that retreat or go to that particular teacher and then that's when all the abuses start happening right because it's not that you didn't feel it it's real like it's not not real but nor is it really real because then it just goes away and then you're back to you know everyday life it's it's almost like a trip you know, like a psychedelic trip. It's not not real. Yeah. It was tangible. You felt it. But it's also not really real because it doesn't often leave lasting impressions. Though it can be the gateway or doorway into genuine spirituality. Like, oh my God, I know what I felt. Now let me try to figure out what that is and how I can have it for myself. Absolutely. Yeah. So cool. Thank you so much. Good to see you, by the way. It's so nice to like talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Good to see you too. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing. Ah, oh, wonderful. So nice. What a nice Buddha Purnima. Yes, dear Rebecca. Swaddle hey. Hello. 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 I'm doing wonderful. Um, so where was I? Oh my gosh, this entire lecture, I was just like, usually I'm like the first one to pop on and have a question and like have so many thoughts running through my head. But today it was just like a great remembrance of like where I started and why I started like my spiritual journey of like the basics of everything like oneness of like when I finally realized like when I'm looking at somebody else is like I see God in them and I see me in them like the good and the bad and then also what we were talking about how we find the beauty in everything like I remember like instead of being sad and suffering it's like I'm sad. I'm going to put on my good, sad music and enjoy <laughs> the sadness. Yeah. I'm going to like It's just such an amazing feeling of like, I am where I am right now. And, um, and like right now, like it was, it's good to go back to the basics and like understand like my foundation because I'm always like, what's the next thing? Level up, level up, like understand yes. more, like what's the next thing I could receive. And just like, all right, it's okay to be just like, the ethics of everything, the beauty of everything, just understand, like, just the subtle little things. You don't need to be expansive and everything. Like, those will come in time. Yes. And yeah. I, 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 like, I love, like, you said, um, like, a, a few weeks ago, like, practice broadly. I mean, um, study, study broadly. broadly, but practice specifically. And that's kind of, like, where I'm trying to head to because, I'm kind of like the picker and chooser of everything. Yes. I'm like, it'll come to me when it comes to me. And yeah, it is coming to me when it comes to me. Actually, like it, it, the more that I'm picking and choosing, the more it's like, all right, this is where I need to go. And yeah. like uh, shifting my path into where I need to be to practice specifically. Cause I come from a Christian background and like thinking um, back in the day, like just like, when I started really questioning everything and that was like one of the basics of like spirituality is like questioning everything. And that's like how we grow and expand. I thought Christianity put everything into a nice little bow about life. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what is life? Like what? <laughs> this is not a perfect 
bow of I don't know. I feel like everybody else now. Now I'm an atheist. Now I don't know what to believe. And then <laughs> I start building that. Um, but yeah, it was just it was good to be back in those shoes. And like oh, I now like there's always a solution to everything. There's always an answer. You like and you'll find it because you're God. Like you 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 like create your own answers. Like it'll it'll like you'll those perceptions will come to you. Precisely. I mean, a big part of my intention with these last few series, uh, last few lectures in this series, is that like a return to foundations, a return to roots, a return to innocence, you know, because sometimes in these we can get so far afield and talk about these really expansive ideas. and They're way up there and out there and like we can get disoriented a bit. And so I, I see this as each cycle of lectures is kind of three stages. The first one takes about a year is really just the view, you know, like teaching all these ideas. And the second one is breaking it down, like really getting into specifics and stuff. And the third part is what we're in now, which is integration, you know, like really trying to ground, build foundations, build a practice, build a path, and then we'll go right back. So the way it cycles right back to the listening and then the teachings are presented again. And so the way this works, the pedagogy in this school is like, you hear the teachings, you think about the teachings, you practice, 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 and then you go back to hearing the exact same teachings you heard like a year or two ago, except now they're new teachings you get something completely new out of them, you know? So that's, that's why I'm so happy to hear you say that. Cause I feel that way too. Like reading to, I mean, doing today's lecture, it's like, let's remember how we started, how we came into this, how we got our own genuine spirituality. You know? So nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Practice, practice specifically, certainly, but you're right. There is a phase in all of our spiritual lives where we have to be broad and like kind of pick this, pick that, you know, kind of syncretic, try a bunch of different stuff, but it will streamline. You'll come to spaces like mm-hmm. this. You'll hear a lot of different ideas and something will click, something will resonate, resonate. And then before you know it, you have a daily devoted practice in a particular tradition. So it's very important. A lot of people come to this kind of tradition of syncretic religion and they feel like, okay, I'm going to practice a little bit of everything. That won't work. You have to be grounded in one specific tradition, though comparing your experiences in that tradition with the literature of all the other traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, so have you had some new insight as to what you want to do, like daily, what your practice is starting to shape up as, and you know, what what path? Um, I'm still figuring it out, but Buddhism today is really struck out to me. It's right now, it's more reading, more more knowledge based about everything because I got the basics down. Like I met it, and like reminding myself about like the blissfulness of meditation and where everything comes from is like meditation. So I'm grounding myself in meditation, meditation, meditation. And I I trust and believe that it's going to come to me very quickly. Truly. That's the bread and butter. Meditation is the bread and butter of spiritual life and all the insights spontaneously emerge from that. Yes. Yes. And don't forget to use this resource, you know, text me anytime, be like, Hey, what books do I need for this? Or, you know, what, what do I do for that or whatever? I'd be happy to help if I can. God willing. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. Good to hear from you, Rebecca. Always nice to check in. All right. Nice to, nice to see you. Nice to talk to everybody. I love being in this room and this energy. It's always great. Every Monday. So refreshing. Thank you all for coming on Mondays. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been like so many years over two years now we've been doing this and I am always wondering, you know, 
when we started this, there were only two people, one or two people in this room. And it was awesome. It was really good. And there were some days where it was just me in this room and it was also awesome. It was awesome. But um, it's just a different vibe. Like when everyone is together and there's such a celebration of spirit. And I always feel like, you know, one of these days I'm going to come on the Zoom room and it will be like, I'm sure everything's everything ebbs and flows. You know, I'm like, one of these days I'm going to come out of the Zoom. It's just going to be me and like Westerfer. You know, it'd be awesome. But I'll be like, oh, you know, these days we're all together. And so it's, I'm just so grateful that everyone brings something to the potluck. You all come and we spend time together and everyone shares and teaches and what a community we've created together. Thank you for showing up and for showing up for as long as some of you just here all night. And it makes me very happy. So thank you. <laughs> yes. I can't stand worldly talk. So it's the sincere cry of all spiritual aspirants to find people to just talk spirituality with forever. <laughs> Here's Anna. Yes, dear Anna. How are you? Hi, thank you. I'm good. And you? Very well. Very well. Good to see you. You too. I just wanted to, to share something that happened this week, last week, that I was, like I told you some weeks ago, I was like in a really good point in like feeling the spirituality and everything. And then one day, I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> like I lost, like I was out of sync. And so I was like, I, I, I you, as you know, I like every time when I take a shower, when I do my makeup, when I get ready, I'm listening to your podcasts. <laughs> Or your YouTube video, like your lectures and everything. And I was listening to one that was like, like, I don't know, like super deep into Tantra and everything. And I just didn't hear it. Like I couldn't hear it. It, it was just like, I was like trying to catch up every 10 seconds. So I was like, no, I'm out of sync. I need to go back. And so I went to like the first, uh, like my favorite podcast, like from the, the start of your podcast, like how to enjoy life. And yeah, yeah, the early stuff, like romantic relationships, yeah. how to enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah. So it, now that you mention it, that you go through like cycles, it's like, oh, I should have waited for that because I mean, I still loved it. Like it was so refreshing and it was like, right. Yeah. That's why I'm doing this. And that's how I got to, to be in that state for a moment there. So it was like, like, like I have like a gas, like a gasoline. Like now I know what I, where, where I'm going, like what I'm looking for. And, but it's different because this time I heard the, the first podcast, it, it, I got such different messages from the first time I heard it. So it was pretty cool. So I, I was just like super glad. And I went to share that because it felt like, like affirming, like reaffirming the experience that I had. So yeah. <laughs> me that's wild like the same book the same lecture the same words yet a whole different experience a whole new level of depth just from going back after like a year or two 
of practicing and thinking yeah. and learning. It's like, yes, it's, it's a gift. Whenever I, I, I watch something or read something, I always think this is a gift that will continue giving for the rest of my life. Because every time I return to it, there's something new in it. Totally, totally. And it's really nice. And something interesting happened. I've had kind of like an issue getting to the bhakti part. And yes. it's just difficult for me because I don't know. I just, I have never done it and it's not natural for me. Yeah, yes. So, but from listening to the podcasts again, it was like, oh yeah, bhakti. Yeah, I have to try that. And this time I felt more inclined to do it more open to it right and so i thought like you know what like the virgin mary she's like she's always been there she's all over my house like i live in my my mother-in-law's ex house like yeah you know i got married and i moved in here and she she went off to the states so the house was full of virgin mary's like you saw it. You saw the painting, the beautiful painting that we have. And so I was like, you know what? This is like, it feels so much more natural. Like, I do like Ganesha and everything, but I just couldn't imagine him in my yes, mind. Like, yeah. like, when I tried to meditate. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with Virgin Mary. And I, w- and I tried it. And it was so much easier. Yes. Like, I could totally see her. And so I was like, you know what, I need, uh, I'm going to buy a statue of Virgin Mary. And I was like, decided, like, I'm going to do it today. And so I was telling my mom, because she came over. And when I told her this, I turned around and I looked like to the corner of the room. And and bam, there there was a statue of the Virgin Mary, like in the corner of the room behind some uh, uh, photo that we had. And, uh, and it was just like shining, like it was looking at me in that moment. And I was like, oh, my, that was so like I was tripping because I just that doesn't happen. You I, know, like it's surreal. It, you it, feel it, the touch of divinity. So, yeah. 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 It's like my, my eyes just went right there and I hadn't seen it I did not know that it was in this house so it, it was kind of hidden so yeah that happened so that was awesome and now I have to learn the rosary so I can complete my bhakti with Virgin Mary <laughs> oh my god there's so much so much richness in what you shared like we could all learn two two very important things you know the, the first one is with regards to Ganesh versus Virgin Mary, like all the gods are all forms of the same thing, but we each have a proclivity, right? Based on our cultural background and our past lives and all of that. And so when Vivekananda came here, every lecture, I think we've said this once, but he always said, I want to make Christians better Christians. God forbid the Christian convert into Hinduism or the Hindu become a Muslim or the Muslim. You know, the idea is that it would be weird to work in a channel that's like new and different from what you've already been practicing. So that was really wise what you did, which is like, I'm going to feel out what feels natural and, and authentic and you go with that yeah yeah and it works <laughs> it works you got a confirmation like something seems to have you had a vision of the virgin mary in the form of a statue i want a statue she gives you a statue how gracious yeah yeah and like my it, it felt like like an like como se dice man en inglés like a magnet you know like there was a magnet in it in the statue and in my eyes like you know yeah drawn so, in yes yes yeah, yes. Drawn to it. Wow. yeah 
that's the first thing I thought it was really important that we learned from that to go with our own proclivities. The second thing you shared, well, chronologically, the first thing that you shared, but the second thing I'll point out is um, going back to the basics as gasoline for our path. You're like, how inspiring is it to go back to the reason why we started doing this in the first place? The stuff that really moved us and inspired us. And that could be like the podcasts and the songs and the videos and the whatever books that we first started with. Like sometimes going back to those after years and years of practice, it's just rocket fuel for spiritual life. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed that you, you had like, uh, I could like, see the difference between your language when you started out at first you were trying you were explaining everything like you were like okay so tantra this is a tradition way <laughs> and so bhakti bhakti is like and that was like so refreshing too because even though i listen to you all the time sometimes it's like my brain is not caught up yet with all these definitions right. so it was nice like refreshing them <laughs> yeah thank you that helps me too it makes me think like oh well you know maybe i should kind of back up a little bit sometimes you know and offer a little more qualification explanation because you're right as we keep doing these um i tend to take a lot for granted like okay well they know this so i will not explain a certain concept and i, I know there's some new people that come sometimes and it might be helpful to them if you know i take a little more time with certain things and explain yeah, but you also said something last week that you were moving into even subtler and subtler, subtler uh, uh, nuances uh, throughout like the lectures. And I was like, that was cool too, because last week's podcast was amazing. And to tell you the truth, like, as I say, as I tell you, my, my brain is not fully caught up with like the speed in which you talk about such strong topics. So when I, when I was there last week, I was like, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But the next day I, I re-listened to it and I was like, Oh, where the heck was I? I did not understand what you were saying. So and then you said that you were going to move into subtler topics. And I was like, yeah, that's that's so cool because that's what I felt in last week's, like when I re-listened to it, mm. that it was so subtle that I needed to refresh a little and then listen to deeper ones like last week's. And yeah, yeah that was my that's a really good point. I guess in terms of pedagogy, we made the big broad brushstrokes for the last two years. And now we're going yeah. in with a fine, fine felt tip marker, you know, trying to get a little, some nuances, some details. So yes, I, I hope that it's enjoyable for you as it is for me. You know, I'm really enjoying no, some of the is. nuances. Oh, it's so cool. It's like, it, and, and I think it goes in hand with the fact that I, since I started like refreshing and everything, I started practicing more and like being more in need of practicing so i think that the fact that i was practicing i've been practicing was the was the reason why i got to understand those subtle topics right yes 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 yeah. well because you're an intermediate to advanced practitioner now so i'm happy that there's material that suits your level you know because you're going to look at the basic stuff and it's going to inspire you and then you're going to come to the subtle stuff and it's going to challenge you as it should be 
kind of, you know, just yeah. the very edge of understanding. And then we work with it and we replay it and we refresh our memory and then we get more out of it. And so that that's my, my hope, God willing, that that's what comes through. So thank you for that. The really great feedback. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> thank you for everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like my podcast tester. I have to call and be like, Anna, did that last one make any sense at all? You're like... <laughs> are the jokes getting stale Anna you're you're like you're like my product tester I'm like please tell me what do I know and I'm gonna give you another review I liked the discord list that you made the the, the one step yeah yeah the syllabus yeah I was like oh this is genius and and yeah I think it was very much needed Right. Yeah. Like a structure. So I don't know if you saw, but we, um, I edited it a, a bit to kind of have more like female mystic representation. So now there's Teresa of Avila, there's Mirabai, but I also wanted more stuff from Christian mystical traditions. So there's way of a pilgrim brother Lawrence's practice of the presence of God, like stuff like that. So I wanted to be the most holistic, well-rounded, but yet focused and systematic, systematic thing. And it's, it's experimentation. It's a work in progress. So I myself am now working through all the books in that syllabus to see if it makes sense. And I might move some things around. It's still kind of like, you know, a work in progress. Oh, but it's, it's really good. I think it's, it's great because every time I, I like, tell someone hey you should listen to this podcast i don't know which ones to give them first because right. in and i usually i recommend one and then i re-listen to it so that i can talk with that person about it right and then i'm like oh damn that was too intense <laughs> 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 yeah they're not gonna understand it <laughs> they're gonna be lost at swami vivekananda like that's it <laughs> yeah i don't know it'd be interesting for everyone we could maybe like return to first principles next week or something like that like start again from you know kind of refresh the video game and take it from Uh very first principles if that's even possible for us you know at this point but it might be a nice exercise to go back and just say like okay what are some foundational ideas or first principles or like basic stuff and then really take one idea and really just for that lecture talk about just that idea you know it might be valuable Mm -hmm. to do that Mm -hmm. just go back and deconstruct a bit yeah it could be interesting because there are people like in very different um um like Parts of their they're journey. not very advanced or yeah like their journey is not so advanced and for us it would be interesting that we've been listening to you for a while and like been here with you and it's it would be interesting to listen to those questions like their experiences and how we can hear them out i think it's always valuable like one of like the best part like the best lectures like it round the questions and answers really round up like the mm. like our experiences like because like you're such like such an advanced practitioner that it feels like the lecture and, and like you say it's like the the most pure ideals but sometimes like I, I had this I was comparing myself to the highest yeah. ideals and I was like I'm such a terrible practitioner I, I yes yeah I don't deserve God I don't, I don't deserve yeah. it and and then when I heard the Q and A, it was like, oh, oh, okay, so we're all like pretty in the same level. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. The Q and A is so valuable to me. This is my favorite part of the evening. 
you know, and we even experiment on Friday with no lecture, just Q&A. But I find that like lecture sets the tone and then we have a Q&A and that's when it really feels like we can digest it together. And yeah, you're right. Realize that we're all just peers on the path, working at it together. And every day we get a little better and all of us have, we backslide and all of us are dealing with our stuff and oh, we're just a Sangha, you know, all of it in it together, all equals on the path, hand in hand, going home. Yeah, yeah. And it was crazy. Like the, the girl that asked about her brother today, I was like, yeah, I, I know. I was like, that was deja vu for me a little bit. I was like, oh. yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was going to tell you, like, Nish, tell her what you told me. <laughs> tell her to pray. <laughs> no, no. Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, he knows what he's doing. So, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you Nish thank you so much Anna yeah that's another thing too it's like everyone you know I love seeing how everyone has such different proclivities in spiritual life that it keeps it so fresh and interesting because the same question requires very different answers but it's only in Q&A when we get to talk that it's like understandable what that is you know sometimes in lecture I get this feeling of I'm like overwhelmed like I don't know you know who to address and then sometimes the lecture is just for one person and then if it's just for one person i feel like oh, i really hope that, that was interesting for others i get this kind of second thought thing but here i can talk to you and now it's like oh, okay well now i know i know without a shadow of a doubt that this is what this conversation needed and i feel happy i feel so satisfied and fulfilled so thank you so nice yes anyone and then Rose is here. Rose is there saying hello. Yes, dear Rose, how are you? You know, it's been really hard. Uh, yeah. I feel like all of this stuff is so awesome and it brings so much awesomeness to my life to try and practice. And I've been running into this weird sensation that like I don't deserve all of the happiness that yeah, it yeah, yeah. lets me access. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's very common actually. Like this feeling of undeservingness, like it can't be this good. It's too good. Oh my God, something's going to go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just yesterday, oh, someone was... About Sorry, go on. Oh, I don't know what to do about that, but that's, that's how it is. Yeah, there's nothing to do about it. As Orion said so beautifully, there's no doing involved. It, it, they're just phases. They're storms of sadhana, we call it. There's the various buffeting of the winds as you sail the wide ocean of your spirituality. Just yesterday, I can't remember who it was, but I, 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 it's weird deja vu right now where someone was saying exactly this, almost in the same way, which is, it can't be this good. I feel like Twameva was echoing some of those sentiments. Yeah, earlier, right? Interesting. Uh, like no, but wasn't it someone with regards to a like, Buddhist? Like someone hmm. was saying how their Buddhist friends started practicing it. I don't know if you were there, but they were saying like, oh, it was too good. That's why they stopped. Something really weird and counterintuitive like that. It was good, so they stopped doing it because they were worried it was like a drug or something. I don't know. I can't remember. I'll come back. <laughs> but yes, Amal, did you want to say something? Uh, I I was kind of, I want to say something, and then I feel like uh, I've heard Twa Meva echo some of those sentiments around, like, she feels, um, like, in love to have found, like, Ramakrishna and the Ramakrishna order and 
all this. And at times, if it's maybe too good to be true, like I heard her saying some kind of those kind of things. So I had, I talked to her a little bit about that, but um, I just kind of wanted to express um, throughout the like weeks, there's a few things that um, like just me reflecting on having you all as a community and um, you know, the joy of having it's, I see how much I was lacking um, Sangha. Mm. And, um, you know, I was very protected in my practice at certain points of my journey. And um, the other part that I see is very important is the routine. Mm. So there's been a few things that have kind of been like showing themselves to me. One is just that, that uh, how important routine is in spiritual practice. And um, yeah, and just being grateful to finally kind of have a community that, you know, can see you and you can have like a reason to practice. And, yeah, you know, of course, there, of course, you have a reason to practice outside of that. But if you don't, you know, you it's kind of what's the fun in it if you can't, you know be together and you know yes yes so, yeah Jamahe. where's the fun in that if we can't do it together yeah yeah i've done a lot of moving around and you know lots of stuff has happened uh you know i was 2017 i essentially um there were like two years of finding the tribuco monastery and i would stay on my days off i did that for a year and then i like um did a trial run as a brahmachari like i asked swamiji for a trial run but um because he wouldn't let me come he was like no you you have to go to school that's what he kept telling me yeah yeah so anyway so that was is i left in 2017 so it's been i went to portugal and i was with muji and then i lived on the big island of hawaii for almost two years and uh so anyways it's been like I didn't always have access to, you know, a community like this. So very grateful for that, grateful for the internet, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another thing. Like, you know, when you have a community localized in a certain space and then you have to move, it's like, oh no, well, I don't have my Sangha anymore. This is cool because it feels yeah. like wherever in the world we go, we're all just a laptop away from each other. You know, we could like tune into people in South America as Anna's and like tune in people in Europe and all over America, all the different states. So when we travel, we'll have people to see all of our sangha all over the place. Right. It's not like that with like Ramakrishna centers, you know, like right. we have center here in Portland or I'm sure if I, we ever go to India or something like we'll feel at home at, you know, going to a center, but yeah, it's been I'm, I'm really grateful because I've had a bit of that kind of like lack of inspiration to, um, yes. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to school and I'm doing all the things like now that I have to do, like, so it's kind of like all the energy's going there, but then now I can, um, yeah, kind of like come back to myself and find out where I'm at with all this. And you said last week, practice. return to your roots. And yeah. last week you had used that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm going back to, you know, the original books I first read. And yeah. I'm enjoying. And I yeah, I appreciate you, Nish. 
thank you for, you know, just by your, you presenting, you know, you uh, being here, like without you, I, we wouldn't be here. So without mother, huh? Without her, how would we all be? <laughs> what a miracle. Someone came, Arman, who also was with Muji, I think in India. So he was with Muji in Benares. I think he was doing some of Muji's mm-hmm. like computer uh, video stuff, but he was here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. He reads different second time around. Exactly. He was here and we were talking and, and he said, he expressed to me, he's like, what a beautiful thing that you're creating. He was excited because we had the Tuesday night meditation here. He came when it was just like one person. Mm-hmm. And then now the house mm-hmm. is like filled and it's amazing to see. Right. And it's so gratifying. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this is, it's becoming a thing. It's like picking up speed. And um, he was like, wow, what a beautiful thing. We're something like we're creating. What a beautiful thing we're creating or something. Mm-hmm. And then there was this deep sense of, well, the better phrase is we both kind of came upon it together. It's like, look at what's happening. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, look at what's yeah. happening. It's just beyond yeah. us. And it's just kind of doing its own thing. And it's so exciting. It's like, oh, I'm doing Tuesday evenings is so cool. I wish you could all no, it's crazy when but i'll be down in southern california in the beginning of june maybe i'll have to make it up there oh definitely it's given it's like written in it's not written in water it's written in stone okay <laughs> tuesday nights at nish's house yes absolutely that's a thing okay I'll, I'll i'll try and get a hold of you and see how i can do that wonderful friend so i think on that note we'll call it an evening what a beautiful, oh, so nice. I'm just so happy. Thank you so much for celebrating Buddha Purnima with me today. You know, mm-hmm. like it's a very auspicious time, you know, with the lunar eclipse and all of that. And just, it feels like there's a freshness in the air and a new zeal and intensity for practice and sangha and fellowship. So next week we'll do our lecture. We'll return to some foundational principles of Advaita. You know, look at like almost even ask the question, what is consciousness? Stuff like that, basic stuff. And then we'll slowly build, build, build. Right. Sorry, Maha Yogananda might come sometime soon too. So we'll have another guest guest appearance. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. It is a joy and a pleasure to see you all. Bye, Anna. Bye, dear Ria. Ria's coming to say goodbye. Tori, bye, bye, dear Tori. Bye, Lakshmi. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Dave. I hope, Kaz, you enjoyed the Buddha Purnima special and all the Zogjen conversation. Farewell, Iris. Dear Sarah. Bye, Vanessa. You know, I like to see Vanessa's development of uh, pictures. This is new. There's a uh, rocks balancing now. And dear Hales. Bye, dear Hales. Madeline. Chandra Serenia. Bye, bye, Rose. Bye. Oh, bye, bye, Heather. Bye, dear Richard. Bye, Mia. Good to see Mia today. All right, <laughs> let's chant out. Hong Purnamada Purnamidam. Purnyat Purnam Mudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Harihyong Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu O Lord, filled with Brahman are the things that I see. Filled with Brahman are the things that I do not see. From Brahman comes forth Brahman. Brahman fulfilled in Brahman. Brahman unaggrandized or undiminished in creation and destruction. As Brahman to Brahman and for the pure joy and sake of Brahman alone, I salute thee. May this be an offering to Sri Ramakrishna. Om peace, peace, peace.